Hi everyone, a quick note before we start the show regarding the discussion about the unique horror of the American colonists' violence toward indigenous peoples as mentioned in this episode. We failed to mention another instance of this type of history which should have been brought up. The Herero and Namaqua genocide was an awful event in history which, like the atrocities brought up in Mason and Dixon and our discussion, should not be forgotten or dismissed. Thank you and enjoy the show. And thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 31 through 35 of Mason and Dixon. Will, can you summarize those chapters for us, please? Absolutely. So Mason and Dixon awake one day in that Pennsylvanian metropolis to such startling quiet that they can hear the twitterings of birds for the first time in recent memory. They ascertain that something obnoxious must be afoot, probably another tent revivalist passing through, and bicker over whose clothes make them more suited to scoping out the sitch. Mason's conspicuously muted ensemble versus Dixon's ribald affair. After enough dressing down, Mason decides it'd be best to accompany his partner. Soon they meet with a brawl in the street and are spied out as out-of-towners by a relatively friendly man who invites them to a coffee house to receive the news. A militia, the Paxton Boys, have slaughtered what seems to have been the entire population of women, children, and elders of a native tribe who'd sought refuge in the nearby town of Lancaster. They'd heard of the previous massacre in Conestoga, but it hadn't registered, and now the Paxtons were en route to Philadelphia to murder a sect of Protestant converts who resided therein. The pair cannot fathom this degree of cruelty. Cherry Coke sums it up. The liberty to hunt or maim another as much as one wished was still cherished as a core component in those days. It turns out the priest holds a certain degree of contempt for the practice of genocide. In the coffee shop, a vigil held for the arrival of the militia. Monologues are made by nameless men. How much like the Irish or Scots are these Indians? Shouldn't they take up the Anglo tradition of shunning thy neighbors? Or is that simply a useful framework for the British purposes in the colonies? The discourse fades into an excerpt from talks describing how the mysterious Franklin held the Paxton boys at the city's limit. They do not arrive this night, however. The clouds do. And the boys are back in the cafes, discussing their next steps. Dixon wishes he could have occasion to take up some arms against the militia, while Mason's hesitant. Regardless, they reminisce on the Jacobite rebellions of their youths, even though Dixon was barely sentient for them. Mason reveals his luddest sympathies, shares how his old generation seemed riled against the earliest risings of industry. He feels he's been in exile from it his whole adulthood, though pushed more toward, toward than away from anything in particular, unwittingly in pursuit of something. This conversation terminates in a brief fight which Pitt and Pliny happily extend to a full-blown full blown bout, complete with onlookers placing bets on the outcome. It is now decided that they've been up late enough off to bed for the boys, despite their protests that the story promised hadn't been delivered. So Cherry Goat gives them the brief. No, they don't fight any Baxton boys. No, they don't win to ya with 
sorry, they don't witness Pontiac's rebellion. Far too busy running lines and looking upwards for that. Back in 1763, Dixon tells Mason how his teacher entrusted him with a watch sworn not to need winding. Despite the clear lack of a key slot or winding crown, the astronomer laughs him off. This perpetual motion is disturbing to Dixon, who soon questions whether Emerson has somehow devised a curse with this miracle of engineering. It, the watch itself, seems to tell him. It belongs with him. It belongs inside of him. He cannot bear it any longer, which is convenient. A tinker surveyor and their party soon becomes enamored, haunted by desire for this ticking enigma. He sneaks into, Dix into Dixon's bags one night, seeking to hold the thing, but when he's discovered, oop, down the hatch it goes. Not only does this surveyor lose his job on the team for the theft, but he very nearly loses his wife to the incessant ticking. Years later, tired of it himself, desiring the fame of owning such a marvel rather than acting as a safe for it, he gags himself to vomit it up, but the little clock seems to bite his finger for the insult, so there it stays. When Dixon fesses up to Emerson about the fate of the watch, he receives a response from his wife. Reading the letter, the older man had found such humor in the events that he had a bad fall, but she passes along that all went according to his design. They spend a few days at a gaming house, partying with the proprietors of Maryland and Delaware, where the novel mixtures of substances all present consume seem to stir up unbeforeseen degrees of spirit. From there, they move along west to the farm of the Harlands, in who opinions of the interlopers are split. Mr. Harland is happy to host them, pocket the rent money, even volunteers them the garden. Mrs. Harland is less happy about all this. As their time there passes, Mr. Harland begins to join them in making observations, showing himself to be a quick, quick learner in astronomy. And so they move on further west. We are treated to a montage as they map out the final initial coordinates for their soon-to-be visto. Mr. Harland joins them for the salary, as well as the adventure, and when he returns, his wife has filled the yard with his least favorite crop, but he's changed, and so finds beauty in the plot. We flash back to the time Wicks explained the untangling of the Maryland-Delaware borderlines to Tenebrae. In short, the nobleman who'd laid out that geometry had flexible interpretations of how intersections might occur. A year later, they've, all, they've laid it all out flat and neat. Sure, there's no lovely meridian straight tangent line, but at least Philadelphia isn't inside of Delaware inside of Maryland. They return to the Harland estate for winter, a year's worth of hard work well done. Taking a vacation from labor, but not from horror, they attend Lancaster, where the massacre had taken place the prior year. They find it sickening how a whole tourist industry has arisen to take advantage of the recent event. Thankfully, they're saved from the tour by suspicious locals interrogating them about their providence. Dixon plays with fire, challenging all their excuses for the mass murder, but does not quite instigate anything but anxiety for his partner and some general moaning about the differences between city and country folk. Mason, unable to sleep at the inn, wanders about in the early morning and finds the sight of the slaughter to hold its dread psychic energy about the place. Dixon goes to see it himself, dressed in Mason's clothes, and acts as our eyes, horrified. They leave swiftly when he returns. Next is a break in the narrative. <clears throat> as Cherokee gets tied up in an argument about the duties of a historian, he is of the opinion that certainty cannot be had about the past, and Ethelmer seems to agree, which disturbs the other men of the house. Ives is offended at the mention of this newest form of popular art, the novel, 
Well, Euphremia defends many of those plots as very much possible, thank you very much. Tendential to Brandy, which is poured, Wix tells a story of how he once rode a coach full of people. One of these travelers was a young mother going to Philadelphia to engage a lawyer to defend her from a land jobber. Her husband had nearly died in a hopspin disaster and swore to have seen God. Now he's off preaching, leaving her to defend the property. She'd paid off the, the Pennsylvanian taxes, but her Maryland neighbor filed a claim on it, saying that since it was clearly in Maryland itself, she'd been delinquent, and it was now in his sheet. They approach the city, they stop, step out, speak to the driver, and find him absent, as the coach dissolves, leaving them stranded on the prairie. There, they drink Octorara peach brandy until somebody saves them. All right, thank you for that. Um, so let's start off with everyone's general thoughts and feelings on these chapters. I personally had probably the hardest time reading these chapters of any of them so far, which I found strange. Um, I think there's a lot of really good content in here, uh, especially in the early chapters as they're going about through the the surveying and then eventually through the whole thing with the watch. And then when they visit the, the site of the massacre, I thought all of that stuff was really great. But it it kind of, at least to me anyway, goes into very strange territory, especially in the last two chapters that I had some difficulties parsing out um, and had to go back and, and read through a few of the paragraphs, a few of the pages a couple of times. But, you know, uh, there's a huge span of time that's also in these five chapters. I believe that the first few of them as they're going through surveying work is is about a year's worth of time of them actually drawing out these lines. Um, but it's it it did feel nice for them to finally sort of get to the work that we've been expecting them to arrive at up until this point and there's some very interesting sort of musings on capitalism and land acquisition especially in that section where they're dealing directly with with a farmer and his wife this the scene in particular where they finally draw the line that cuts through his property and then suddenly he describes like this change in the man that he he suddenly wants more property like he wants more land he wants to expand out his what is his is very interesting this idea that demarcation and boundary line and and cutting these lines through the land is actually you know shifting the attitudes and the desires of the people that it's affecting i think the way that he describes that and puts it forth is really fascinating and frankly all of the conversation about the the American Indian Wars and the massacres that took place, I think, similar to kind of what we were talking about last week with, you know, Washington owning slaves and some of the the darker aspects of American history, is really important because it's it's a period of American history that in schools here in America does get talked about, but not nearly in the same depth. And so, in the same way that someone going through those those chapters that we went through last week maybe doesn't understand how a lot of what they're reading is pulled from actual history. I think there there's a similar education to be had here as well in that, you know, the the orchestrated killing of, of natives in this country wasn't just done by the military, it wasn't just done by the government. In a lot of cases it was it was done by people who had nothing but just genuine hatred for, for a different people group. And there was a lot of the same interesting ideas about colonialism cutting both ways that we found when they were in Helena and Cape Town that's that's just as you know the same here this is the scene where Dixon and Mason are talking about well we had this reasoning for 
why people were were being pushed to extreme lengths in these other nations, you know, whether it be the weather, or the particular location of, you know, this island or the wind, you know. But why is it happening here? What is it? What is uniquely American or what is uniquely present in this country that's causing it and how it's afflicting people who have no reason to be afflicted because by all accounts they should be you know living in harmony with the people who are here it's a lot of very tough discussion but i would say vital and it really does turn the lens on on the reader to wonder not only why this is history they're not aware of but also why it happened in the first place so there's a lot in these chapters definitely that's that's worthy of discussion as i'm sure we'll get into but i also found that as they were closing out, I was I was having a bit of a hard time understanding what what, what Pinchon was going for. Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from with that. It it definitely I, th- I think for me there were several parts of these chapters that I had to kind of go back and and reread a couple of times to uh, kind of not necessarily remind myself of what had happened, but to just make sure I was staying on on track with the way things were going. Um, but at the same time, I. You know, everything you touched on just now, Kate, was like, I, I don't want to say my favorite part because it it makes it sound kind of strange. Mm-hmm. It's, it's I think, one of the most important thematic parts of this story um, is that that idea of, of what drives the evil that men do. You know, yeah. is it is it nature? Is it is it built into us or is it is it a result of you know, our circumstances and the position that people get put into that drives them to do these horrible things. And, and not only that, but in, in that kind of revisionism of history that you mentioned with, you know, the way American schools operate of not either, either blatantly not talking about a lot of these things or glossing over it in such a way that it's almost made to look trivial and, and blown out of proportion. And that's where I think, you know, we tend to have a lot of problems where people, have forgotten the awful things that have been done um, in in not just this country, but really in, throughout history by by people, mm-hmm. and that allows those kind of things to recur. You know that old you know the old adage of history repeating itself. But yeah. you know it ultimately comes down to you know who has the the power and authority to write that history, and and that allows it to be directed in that way. Um, that being said, you know, there were also, there were a lot of, I thought, really funny moments throughout here. Yeah, sure. Um, there were some beautiful, uh, passages that we'll, we'll get to, um, in time, but I, I really did enjoy these chapters. I think I would, I would argue that I enjoyed them more than the previous five. Um, but I, there was definitely, I think a lot more going on both, uh, thematically and plot wise. To kind of build off some stuff that Kate talked about, it was interesting to me that uh, the Americans, like um, the the American urge to subdivide land and build fences and uh, be really into real estate and land ownership is linked to the uh, creation story in Genesis, um, which I think kind of is a, is a really kind of, the more I think about it, I mean, it's a, it's a really nice move by Pynchon slash cherry coke um in that it does kind of link this book and that kind of stuff to manifest destiny and the feeling that um like the whole like america being a a city shining on a hill or whatever that whole thing is which i was taught in school but i'm kind of blanking on some of the specifics but i did find that aspect of these chapters really interesting um i also had something else i wanted to say one sec um 
Oh, one thing that struck me while I was reading these chapters, especially the part about the Paxton boys and them massacring presumably innocent and I think at least somewhat assimilated Native Americans, is that I don't, I don't like whenever you think of the, I, I don't know like, you know, a lot of specifics about the British colonization of places like Africa and India. But I, I'm not aware of there being like, you know, wholesale genocide and massacres and slaughter um, of the natives like there was here in America. You know, like, I don't I don't think that England went into India and you know, like I, I'm not under the impression that, you know, I think that it's I think I've seen figures that, you know, over 100 million Native Americans died as uh, in the 1700s and 1800s and perhaps even earlier. And I just don't I'm, I could be wrong. And perhaps one of our listeners will correct me or, or Brett will correct me. But um, I'm just not aware of, of those types of like insane genocide numbers happening in places like Africa and India. You know, like I, I you don't hear about and, I, you know, I don't I'm, I'm of course not an expert, but you don't hear about British soldiers or, you know, British civilians in India just just killing native Indians, um, people from South Asia killing uh indians is for no reason you like and mm-hmm. like 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 what yeah. happens in this in these chapters um i you know i i have spent some time in africa um and i i'm not aware of any instances where they i'm i'm aware of instances where there was battles and wars between uh native africans and and white settlers but not just white settlers just killing uh natives just for the fun of it basically or just because they exist um so I did find Spinchin kind of highlighting those two things very interesting in these two chapter and these five chapters. Uh, on the enjoyability front, I, I actually I probably like these chapters better than the first five in the America section. The the, the last like I think chapters twenty eight and twenty, oh no twenty nine and thirty I think in the last section kind of confused me a little bit, and I found these a little bit more clear headed. And then one final thing is, um, I, I one of my favorite parts about the America section is that there's all these stories within the story, and the the focus can kind of go off Mason and Dixon for significant chunks of of the text, and um, you know the the story about the guy eating the eating the watch, and then uh, I think in chapter thirty five there's a lot of stuff about cherry coke and mm-hmm. uh, being on like a uh, like a traveling or something you like i i do kind of enjoy the the stories within the stories that are kind of asides that happen in this section yeah and i will real quickly uh just kind of piggyback on what you mentioned luke about the the uniqueness of of the american colonization um I, i'm with you in that i don't i don't at least recall there being any uh majorly documented uh genocides of any kind in other um parts of colonial Europe. Now, I, not, that's not to say there weren't atrocities committed and, and terrible things done in the name of colonialism. Colonialism in itself is, is an awful thing. Um, but it, yeah, I think it is a uniquely American situation, that, that level of violence against almost literally everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think to, to kind of build off of that, and I am curious about your, your first point, Luke, about comparing the the building of america to the creation story i feel like that would be good to go into more detail for yes. for the the listeners um but no i i agree i i can't say that i've experienced any education about the same thing and i feel like the difference is 
a lot of those colonial projects, especially in India, were being executed at the behest of the British government. Like, the British government itself was sending troops and businesses and companies in there to do what they were doing, whereas it seems that the distance between the American colonies and England seems to cause a different end result. That's at least the the, the kind of guess or, or what I've picked up in between reading the history that I have read, in that it was just so far away, so hard to control, you know, and with the, the rapid expansion of private business and private equity in America, it led to people just kind of doing what they wanted. It's it's not necessarily contemporary to this time period, but I think the Osage murders is the perfect example of that, where you have this group of Native Americans that ended up with land that was situated over a, a vast reservoir of oil. They became very wealthy, and then robber barons came in, murdered all of the Osage people, took the land, and took it for their own, you know, private business expansion and and inquiries there. I don't feel like that same mentality of of capitalism or private equity or whatever term you'd want to apply to it seems to have taken root on a broader perspective in some of the other colonial projects. Um, Obviously, a lot of Indians died, but I I believe it was a lot more institutionalized than it was necessarily from a business perspective or or a private ownership perspective like it was in in America. So my my understanding is that yeah, th- this kind of thing is pretty um, not n- never before seen um, prior to the American experiment. Uh, but after after this initial wave and then the the early nineteenth uh, century uh, U.S. government's uh, more organized attempts at genocide, th- there were there were such projects as um, you know the Belgian Free State. Um, the Boer Wars are framed as wars in South South Africa, and they, they are, you know, Dutch colonists being genocided. But, to, you know, in a, in a sense, it's similar to what's happening in the U.S. in the 1700s. Um, and in uh, a little bit prior to then, there were the Zulu Wars in British South Africa. Um, but, yeah, the, this I think... A key part of this book that that Pynchon is trying to to drive home, especially in these chapters, is that America, even if it wasn't the first place that things like this happened, because, of course, the Romans genocided the Celts. This is the first time, this this is a breaking point, it seems, at least Pynchon wants to say, that this is where suddenly the world learned that you could treat other people like this. Mm-hmm. And it seems like he's ascribing it to maybe not necessarily something intrinsic to the land or to the people, but something about the land and the people and the substances and the, the economic incentives seem to have um, formulated uh, what we now term genocide. Yeah, it did occur to me, the the Belgian Congo thing, after I finished talking, you're right. Um, A point I wanted to make real quick, um, I I do think, I don't think it comes up directly in Gravity's Rainbow, but I do think it's probably part of Pynchon's kind of background for Gravity's Rainbow that you should be aware of, is that um, the American genociding of Native Americans um, served as kind of a, a, a... 
an inspiration for the Nazi genociding of of Jewish people and uh, other uh, undesirables, um, which is something I think people I people and I know that people in Germany know that um, I was at a bachelor party years ago and I was very drunk and there's a German guy there. And I stupidly, because Germans hate when you bring up Nazism, but I stupidly brought that whole thing up, and he he started talking about how well you know you know America did it first basically, um, which is an interesting point and one that you know you're definitely you know like it's not like you're taught in American schools that the American that even that Americans killed the, like a, a huge number of Native Americans, let let alone that that America doing that served as kind of a um a lead into um and maybe kind of an excuse for the rise of nazism in germany yeah and just to just to highlight the difference between growing up in a red versus blue state i i was taught in middle school that um suicide didn't exist before americans started killing natives mm. <laughs> so yeah there, there's some variation there but um no it, it's I, I I love these sections, despite the fact that they are truly disturbingly just they're full of horrors. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. Like the 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 section where um, Dixon is looking around at where the rifle butts hit the walls rather than somebody's skull, mm-hmm. or that there's still blood in the seams between bricks. It's just uh, it it is just it is so powerful. And it's, it's, you know, right in the middle of these ridiculous scenes where this guy's telling you about how, well, they twist up the, the cigar, they twist up the tobacco leaf real well and it makes a Mobius strip. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a cool thing that this section pulls off. Because it doesn't feel quite so heavy in hindsight, I don't think at least, but it is. So, yeah, in, in reading these chapters and and specifically in in thinking about the the horrors that are mentioned throughout it i I was i took some time kind of after reading i don't remember which chapter it was i think it was 33 or 34 i kind of took a little bit of time away from it just to kind of process things and and really think on things and i was also kind of doing research on like the paxton boys and um some other little of the history behind all of this kind of stuff but it you know, I was thinking about what we've been talking about, this whole idea of, you know, what is, what is it that Pinchon's trying to, you know, narrow, or not narrow down, but what is, what is he trying to get out, you know, regarding all of these things? And, and you all have, have touched on it so well, you know, about the, the, the history and cycle of violence that, that has occurred. What, mm-hmm. it, what it made me think of is there, there's a quote from Frank Herbert, um, who wrote Dune, one of my favorite books and, and series. Um, and because those books deal so much with, with government and how quickly corruptible it can become and easily corruptible it is. Um, and in, it was in Chapter House Dune that he's, he said, all governments suffer a recurring problem. Power attracts pathological personalities. It is not that power corrupts, but is that it is magnetic to the corruptible. Such people have a tendency to become drunk on violence, a condition to which they are quickly addicted. And I was thinking about that quote in relation to this part of this book and how I think part of, you know, if, if we're trying to figure out what caused all of this, you know, you, I, th- I think it was Will mentioned or Luke, one of y'all mentioned that, you know, there was a distance, a huge distance between 
um, Europe and, and America. And so that ability to kind of keep things in check was almost gone. It was kind of like the parents had left for the, for a week and the kids were in control and it turned into a Lord of the Flies situation real quick. Mm -hmm. On top of that, you have this, this new settlement that is, you know, number one, we're grasping for power in this new area, but we also now have guns, which weren't really a thing uh, in the early parts of, of European colonization. Um, so now it's even easier to kill a bunch of people real fast, real easy. So I think a sort of combination of those, of those things allowed for this to start. And once it started, it was just unstoppable. And we've seen it continue, obviously, throughout American history. But I, I was, that was the first thing that kind of came to my mind was that that, that corruptibility and, and that ease in, in which it happens and, and who it happens to. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even Pinchon himself gets into that idea of distance because when Mason and Dixon first land on the shores of America, I believe it's Dixon is the one who immediately recognizes, oh no, these people aren't British. This mm -hmm. is an entirely different thing. Like, and, and part of that that they bring up, I believe, if I remember correctly, from those chapters is how far away it is. Uh, it might actually be when they're on their way there that Dixon sort of corrects Mason in saying, like, you're, you're expecting them to be British because technically it, it is England, it's a colony, but it, it's, that's not what it's going to be. And, yeah, and I, I, I think the cycles of violence and the cycles of history is something we've talked about a lot on this show because it, it's so important to the book and, and what Pinchon is examining. But even something like the Paxton Boys has its, its cycles in very short order after this period of history is done. I mean, you can look at like the the bushwhackers or the pro-Confederate partisan guerrillas during um, the, the Civil War that engaged in, you know, guerrilla warfare against both the Union Army, but also specifically targeting uh, escaped slaves or regiments of black soldiers for like complete destruction, um, you know, to the point where we're Quantrill's Raiders was the the inspiration for Mannix's Marauders in, in the Hateful Eight. So there is even a portion of history that is pretty contemporary to what's happening, but just sort of out of sight. That is directly drawn to the to the mapping of the Mason and Dixon line. You know, without the Mason and Dixon line, you don't have the the boundary line set for the Confederacy. Yeah, that defines where these these guerrillas were coming from and and engaging in what they were doing. Um, and then even then. You, you move further forward into history and you have lynching and Jim Crow and all of that. So the the target, so to speak, has, hasn't always remained the same, but it is something that does seem to be a uniquely American problem that we have a very, very difficult job in this country getting rid of. And it seems like there is something inherent to the, the building of the country in the first place that uh, is affecting that. And I think a lot of that is is really what Pinchon is trying to to push towards in these in these sections and it's it's interesting to see him develop them because in theory this section of five chapters could be fairly pedestrian you know just following Mason Dixon and the Axemen drawing the line but instead he's he's using it as a tour through effectively cultural disaster to to really spotlight how these things have existed for a very long time in worse 
ways than than most people know. I mean, the the quote on page, I think it's 347 in most people's editions, where Dixon goes to visit the massacre site, and he specifically says, uh, I don't pray enough, Dixon sub-vocalizes, and I can't get upon my knees just now because too many are watching. Yet could I kneel, and would I pray, it would be to ask respectfully that this be made right, that the murderers meet appropriate fates, that I be spared the awkwardness of seeking them out myself and slaying as many as I can before they overwhelm me. Much better if that be handled some other way by someone a bit more credible. He feels no better for this outpouring. And that was one of those sections in this chapter, this set of chapters, that really hit me hard, because that feels very similar to what a lot of people say during modern atrocities, where it's just, I, I can pray i don't think that's going to do anything and i want something to be done about it but I, at the end of the day nothing i i can't do anything about it um yeah. it, it's it's very modern language is is the note that i specifically wrote down in in something that is a near ancient problem um with the period of time that it's talking about yeah, and, and I would also, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that quote because I, I wanted to also mention there was a quote right before there on page 346 um, where Mason is um, talking to Dixon. He says, acts have consequences, Dixon, they must. These louds believe all's right now, that they are free to get on with their lives, that to them, uh, that to them are no doubt important, with no glimmer at all of the debt they have taken on. That is what I smelled, Lathwater. One of the things a newly born forget is how terrible its taste and smell. In time, these people are able to forget everything. Be willing, but wait. Be willing, but to wait a little, and you may gull them again and again, however you wish, even unto their own dissolution. In America, as I apprehend, time is the true river that runs round hell. So, yeah, it, you know, it's just that that awful cycle that we're just yeah, stuck on. God, time is the river that runs around hell, and America is such a profound profound quote still yeah yeah i would love yeah. to hear luke expand on that uh thing he brought up earlier i was just about to ask the bit. same thing yeah <laughs> uh the manifest destiny thing yeah your your yeah, point about yeah. the founding of america versus the creation story yeah i did find that really interesting um i did yeah i was actually a history minor in college i think in like the pilot episode of this show i said I was a history major, but I was actually an English major and a history minor. Um, but I did have a professor who I took a few different classes on the 1800s who uh, talked a lot about the westward expansion in the late 1800s and linked that with uh, Manifest Destiny and all of that. Um, it does seem to be have been a thing in America. Uh, I think even going back to the Mayflower and Jamestown and stuff like that, that um, like America as a sort of promised land, uh, America as uh, like a God-given opportunity to his truly faithful, like to the to his just like you know his uh, the elect and the um, Calvinism uh, definition of the term, uh, which I don't you know, I don't that's not necessarily a thing that we think about anymore as much, you know, we've, we've conquered the American continent. Um, uh, there's not a lot of, um, you know, there's no land left for us to conquer and stuff. Um, and I, I do think I've talked about it in past episodes about pensions kind of obsession with, uh, real estate and 
subdividing the land. Um, I do think it's interesting that uh, it's it's a real part of like a, a, a very like foundational aspect of the American project is that um, everything that everything that the American government does, everything that Americans do, is kind of preordained, and that this land was always here, just kind of waiting for us to to conquer it. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of in the in early America, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of awareness that uh, the people that were living here, while they may not have had uh, European style civilization, uh, were not like the, early Americans seem to tend to view Native Americans as as not even the noble savage, but just just the savage. Yeah. Um, which I think is I think that kind of plays into the Paxton Boys stuff and different stuff I was talking about earlier, where. Um, you know they don't we people don't seem to and this is true for african americans at this time and i guess um in america at this time probably I don't, i'm not 100 percent on the exact population numbers mm-hmm. um for that thought but i i do think it's interesting that you know like the whole everything i was talking about just basically manifest destiny and if, if you don't know what that is it's pretty easy to google um that does seem to kind of come into play even with uh there's some other parts of this chapter about uh british expansion and how uh american colonists were mad at the british government because they weren't allowed to expand into the ohio territories which they had just fought a war with the french and uh some of the native american tribes over and i don't know i, I guess to summarize everything it's just america american america and Amer- americans seem to view seem to view oh. Westward, Western expansion as uh, their God-given right, I guess. Yeah, there's that's a weird fair. sense of pride that's attached to it that I've never been comfortable with. <laughs> yeah, well, I like I like that you brought up the the Calvinism like predestination elect argument because one of the things that came to mind as I was reading the section where they talked about sort of the the decision on behalf of the the Paxton boys and and the citizenry to quote unquote finish the job was that they went and killed natives that had converted to Christianity. And that, to a certain degree, you have this group of people deciding who the elect actually are. You have this 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 rogue element who likely, as we talked about many times, had a religious affiliation because most people did at this point. It was just sort of normal choosing to put on another people, no, you're not actually of the elect you're not actually of the people of jesus we are making that decision for you and we are we are going to to sort of cast you out of eden so to speak within this this idea and framework of of westward expansion and and of viewing america as sort of a a analog to a creation myth it's i don't know if that subtext comes across too strongly on the page but it was something that definitely hit me as i was reading those sections yeah, well, and I, so I did some, a little bit of research on the, the Paxton boys, which was depressing as all hell. Yeah. Um, and basically, and, and I would love to get some, uh, some insight on this from Brett um, whenever he gets a chance to. Um, but basically, they were squatters on, on tribal lands, uh, which was in violation of treaties that were around at the time. Um, and they basically could not wrap their heads around the fact that these indigenous tribes could be friendly and, declared all of them to be a threat and anyone else who was associated with them or they felt threatened by uh were also considered a threat and so that that's essentially who they targeted 
Um, so they basically, they went into Conestoga town on December 14th, 1763, looking for a specific tribe member. Um, his, his name was, uh, Tinsidagua and I'm pr- I probably horribly pronounced that. Um, but he wasn't even there. So they went ahead and just killed as many people as they could there and then went back to look for him again on December 27th of 1620, 1763, which is where, uh, that's what's mentioned in, on page 304. Um, and again, killed, uh, I think it was 20 uh, of the Susquehannock tribe between both of those attacks, including women and children. Um, and yeah, you know, as you mentioned, like basically drew the ire of everybody that was there, you know, and, and Ben Franklin even wrote in his uh, narrative of the late massacres um, that the Susquehannock would have been safe quote, among any other people on earth, no matter how primitive, except the Christian white savages of Pekstang and Donegal. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, these guys were a rogue element who took it upon themselves to act out this sort of vengeance or, or you know, vigilante justice that they had built up in their mind, which is scary that that happened almost 300 years ago and is still relevant today. We, you know, we yeah. still see that kind of shit now. Um, and again, history doesn't, you know, no one learns from history and we end up going through it again. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've dated somebody who was native and learned a lot about native history outside of just the, the kind of American Indian war period to the point where one of the things that she told me at one point was that I think it's like 54% of the U S population thinks that there are no native Americans left that they're oh just God. completely extinct, which is a a statistic that is insane to hear, but is completely backed up by actual research and and surveying. Like as far as you know, to to Benjamin Franklin's quote, like these are people that should have been safe amongst any other people on Earth. You know, they had land treaties, they had these early things that we to a to a very minute degree tried to hold to but these rogue elements these squatters on their own land and all of that just completely exacerbated and kicked off this cycle of violence that has led to a world where a good chunk of people believe that there are no native americans left like that is a depressing my head around that yeah i and when she told me i was i couldn't believe it it was absolutely crazy to hear that and then to to know that it was it was fact, yeah, blew my mind for for months afterwards. One thing that uh, just occurred to me that um, I was talking to my my brother uh, a few weeks ago, just kind of randomly. We were talking about I don't exactly remember the context of this conversation. We were talking about the um, the sale of the island of Manhattan in the I think early 1600s. And he was talking about how um, I, I don't think this is true for every Native American tribe, but whatever tribe that was, I'm blanking on which one, um, according to my brother, at least didn't have any concept of land ownership. I don't think that's true of every Native American tribe, like I said, but it is interesting that, you know, like we look back on that as, as such a like, you know, it, it comes up on Reddit every once in a while that I'm um, like today I learned and and everything. But it. It is, you know, like that real estate is worth so much now. And then it was sold for just some beads and some whiskey or something. Um, mm-hmm. And it is it is interesting to think about the fact that 
you know, the Native Americans didn't even realize what they were selling. You know, they just thought it was, they thought they were basically getting free money because they had, you know, they had no concept of people um, taking over something like a, 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 something like land and, and excluding others and p- charging people f- to live on it and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Which I mean, and that gets to the to another quote that I found incredibly striking um, when they're going through. I forget. I forgot the the name of the like farm owner that they talk to, but um, when they finally finish cutting up his land, there is this excellent quote here. Um, it's on page 334 in my edition. It says, Here's Harland among the sunflowers having romantic thoughts for the first time. Betts notices it. He has changed. He has been out running lines into the distance when once Brandywine was far enough, and now he wants the West. The meaning of home is therefore changed for them as well, as if their own fields had begun with tremendous smooth indifference to move in a swell of possibility. And there's a section just before that quote where Harlan, the farmer, kind of has a indifferent perspective towards working his land. Like, he just kind of says, oh, whatever, like, you know, you, my wife, you know how to handle it. Why don't you do it? I'm going to go, like, essentially watch Mason and Dixon do their thing. But by the end of it, the only thing that they've done is is essentially mark out a line. And in so doing, he immediately has a romanticized view of what is his and what can be his because there's anything like a demarcation point and that final clause in the sentence this swell of possibility is inherently a little terrifying if you're looking at it as the reality that even the the non-native settlers kind of had this view that just land was there and you could live on it you could grow stuff on it but there wasn't an idea that it was something that you could own or that something could be yours and something else wasn't until something made that incredibly obvious to you. And it definitely stood out as one of the most profound quotes in those early chapters of this section. The most, the most poignant aspect of uh, the Harlands to me is the fact that he, you know, he goes out with them, he checks out the telescope and he, he follows them not because I mean, sure, he, you know, there's the, the five pounds salary, but it's not about that for him. He's clearly enthralled with the idea of astronomy, the idea of learning more about the world. And it's really, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really poignant that, you know, the way that it capitulates for him is to, to find this sudden ache for expansion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and going back to that that concept, because I think it's a widely held uh belief that the that the indigenous peoples here didn't understand what they were getting into and didn't value land ownership and all that. I, I don't think I, I think that's been pretty thoroughly debunked as far as or or at least it's been it's been shown to be a gross exaggeration. I think what it really is is they, they didn't know capitalism. And they were operating on a completely different, you know, economic system than what was introduced when, when the settlers came over. And so, yeah, all of a sudden you have, you know, the, all these Daniel Plainviews that come rolling in 
you know, taking everything that they want and, and not caring who they're hurting or, or who's, you know, anything that they're, they're taking away. It, it, it's meaningless because it's theirs now. Um, but I also wanted to touch on what, what Will brought up was um, that interest that Harland had in astronomy. Because um, I, I loved that dialogue between Mason and Dixon and Harland and, and the kind of explanation of the process of, of mm-hmm. astronomy. And I was, um, I was out of town uh, over the weekend for 4th of July with some family. And um, I ended up having a discussion with someone about uh, how insanely accurate those methods still are, but especially how, they, how accurate they were at the time. And I was doing a little bit of research today about the, the measuring, because it, it brought to mind, I think his name was Erastenes, I'm probably horribly mispronouncing that one. Uh, he mapped out uh, an idea of the circumference of the Earth based on uh, the shadow that was cast from one part of, uh, of Egypt, I think is where it was, to another. Uh, and he was insanely accurate with that. But I also found uh, there was a Greek astronomer named Poseidonus who was able to uh, also extremely accurately calculate the circumference of the Earth to, I think, within a couple of hundred miles, which is insane when you think about the actual circumference of the Earth. And he did it using the star Canopus. Um, and that specific instance, his Poseidonus's measurement of the circumference of the Earth was actually mentioned by Pliny the Elder, which I thought was a neat little connection back to this book um but yeah it was astronomy in in this time period and even way before is i think once you understand the fundamentals of it and how it works like there's a lot more that goes into it than is mentioned in the in the book um but it's absolutely fascinating how extremely accurate it can be but also and and this comes up on page 334 um how once you get off track or get off course or make a mistake, how quickly that uh, grows exponentially. Uh, the the quote I liked about that was that uh, it says, it was like tickling a fly under its wing pit with a long and wobbly object such as a fishing pole. Um, I thought that just kind of highlighted the the difficulties of, of doing these measurements accurately was, but how accurate they could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, so going back to the the dune quote you brought up earlier i just just realized in in many ways you can look at all of this as a, an extended metaphor for knowledge is power in the sense that astronomy is literally just looking up and measuring like the arcs of certain stars at certain times of the year and from that you can devise all of this concrete information about the earth in front of you yeah, and it, it it really is you know that that later in the book we'll get into the the way that in in Eastern cultures and Asian cultures uh, astronomy was held as like a as a, a kingly affair, but in this case we really see that this one guy looking up at the stars and this one guy going out on a bit of an adventure really does show him, hey, I could own all of this. This is a power I have. I can look at the world and I can control it because I know it. Yeah. Well, because I know it and you don't. So I can take advantage exactly. of that. Yeah. Yep. So I also wanted to touch on, since we're still kind of in the early part of, uh, of these chapters, I did also want to touch on I, the opening of chapter 31. Um, I, I really love the dialogue between Mason and Dixon that opens that chapter. Um, 
Let me go back to it in, in my book just to pull some examples. But it's basically just them kind of like nitpicking each other a little bit and, and um, kind of prodding each other a little bit about, you know, how how they're dressed or, um, you know, they're just their they're basic being. And I thought it was just such a great example of the, the character dynamic that's developed between these two and how much they, you know, the, how friendly they are with each other. They, they have these kind of back and forth with each other. Yeah, their their dialogues throughout this entire section are really very heartwarming to me. Yeah, from, it's yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, you, here you you have them fighting, but it, it is friendly fighting. It is the kind of fighting that <laughs> brothers have. Yeah, and, exactly. And later on, you, you even see, you know, Mason calls him an astronomer. Mason calls Dixon <laughs> an astronomer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I do think there's kind of uh, an element of um, flirting in, in the opening section. Not like literal, like romantic flirting, but just kind of, you know, poking back and forth. And, um, you know, if they were romantically involved, which they obviously were not, you know, we would call it flirting. And it's kind of like repartee, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, uh, it's. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I agree with Will wholeheartedly is the dialogues between them in these sections is is so funny and, and very endearing. I I wish I could remember what page the quote was on, but. There's one point where they 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 jab at each other about how they they finally quote unquote trust one another or like oh it might actually be be worth it to keep you around now yeah. um but but only just so much <laughs> like it's as we've talked about a couple of different times like it it just it rings so true to life of of either people that you work with and get really close to or just people that you're really close friends with um it, it remains. A, a real centering point for the novel and and is a really intelligent choice on on Pinchon's part to to keep that so central to it because you you really do care about these guys as they they go through things and um it's really heartwarming to see their relationship grow as as you get deeper and deeper into their journey yeah and i th- so that brings me to what i wanted to talk about next was the the opening of chapter 32 um, where you have the, the, the kids kind of specifically are, are prodding wicks to, you know, put more action into the story and, and more, uh, thrills and stuff. And I think that was a really interesting, um, section there because I think it kind of shows that, you know, I think what wicks is getting at is that you don't need to have all of that to tell a good story all the time. Yes, it's good to have it. You have that dramatic element. You have that tension that you build. But you can have a story like this that is primarily focused on this relationship between your characters. And it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. You have these um, platonic, brotherly, familial relationships between characters that are so powerful, but I think tend to get lost in that search for constant action and and excitement yeah and lord of the rings is another good example of that i think that you know a lot of people tend to focus on the uh the the action and the the wild things that go on but they they tend to miss the what i think is the kind of central part of that whole story is is the formation of these relationships between those characters specifically with like with lord of the rings between sam and frodo and with mason and dixon between the titular characters i think that for all the action that takes place in this the the boat attacks and the pirates and the 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 science pirates and all the other you know intense moments for me it's the it's the story of these two men 
and their love for each other. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think um, I'm going to try not to spoil anything, although I don't think it's a major plot point later in the book. But the fact that there isn't any violence in that, you know, even as Kate brought up earlier, you know, Dixon, in response to the massacre of the Native Americans, pray that the prayer is pretty ineffectual. But uh, a piece of literary criticism that I don't have up on my phone anymore because I already read all of it. Um, but it kind of focuses on uh, the piece of literary criticism that I think is just available free on Google. If you just Google Mason and Dixon literary criticism, it's it's maybe a, a page or two down. But he was the literary critic was talking about how Dixon over the course of this book uh, gets increasingly frustrated and. Um, yeah, annoyed. Basically, I mean, I don't. I think frustrated is a better word than annoyed with uh, the treatment of minorities and everything. And it does kind of climax around, I think, page seven hundred with uh, some actual violence um, on Dixon's part. Which again, I don't want to spoil anything, um, but I think y'all perhaps remember what I'm talking about. Uh, it involves mm-hmm. a slave trader mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do think it's interesting and, and to kind of build off what you were saying, Cody, because, yeah, I mean, it would be, you know, more immediately gratifying um, in a kind of base way if Mason and Dixon, you know, got in a fist fight. But it does make some of the some of the payoff later in the book that much more uh, meaningful. Yeah, and I've, I've you know, I just just started to wonder how much of this is in some way uh Given how much Wick's cherry coke can be read as a, a pinch and self insert, even though he he is not one to one, how much of this is him responding to people uh, who were mad at Vineland being the follow up to Gravity's Rainbow? Mm, yeah, that's, a good, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, especially with the way you framed it, Cody. Thank you for putting it in the in the, in the way of you know relationship story versus action story i hadn't thought about it until you said it that way that you know vineland is it's full of action but really it's it's almost all relationships and mm-hmm. gravity's rainbow is famous for its insane comic book action scenes yeah so yeah, yeah you got to wonder how much of that's going on here or how little well not not just that but it's also interesting as we've been talking about this I, i've also realized that while their relationship is the center point, it is really almost used to walk through these periods of history to showcase the reader the atrocities that have been committed time and time again and the effects of colonial projects and expansion westward and all of that. But even in talking about those, Pinchon does not directly put the violence on the page at any point, which if we're thinking about it as a response to, you know, the, the, the frankly comic book like action of gravity's rainbow or the, the, you know, sort of action that takes place in a book like Vineland, it really requires the reader to think about things ancillary to what is on the page to fully understand the action that he is diving into. And he's doing that through the lens of a, intense sort of one-on-one friendship or relational perspective in a way that i find very compelling that didn't really actually occur to me until we started talking about it in this way in that yeah these massacres happen and yes they visit the the actual you know 
leftovers of of what had happened and, and the sites where they took place. But the connection to what is actually going on is consistently off page, and the further implications of what is going on are in the history books outside of this novel. It's it's a very interesting idea and a very interesting way to go about telling this particular story, especially when compared to to the things that he published beforehand. Let's move through the the plot a little further into chapter 32. I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on Emerson's watch. Um, I thought this was a really interesting part of the story because it reminded me of the Maxwell's demon uh, section of lot 49. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, I, I kind of I want to get into the ultimate fate of the watch as well, but I just kind of wanted to uh, talk about the, the concept of the watch itself as, as a sort of um, perpetual motion machine is essentially what it's, it's made to be. But I also wanted to get y'all's opinions on, on who do we think that Emerson, is it explicitly stated that Emerson built it or that he is just the owner of it and is having, uh, having it watched after? I was under the impression that it was just a gift from Emerson. Uh, yeah. I could be wrong. Same. Right. That's what I thought too. And I, so I was curious who actually built it because I don't think that ever came up. No, it's kept vague. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, he's it's kind of implied with the, the, what he says in the letter back to Dixon after everything's gone down, it's kind of implied that he might've designed it, but not, not really. I mean, he, might, he talks about it. It just says, um, felicitations fool for it hath worked to per to perfection. Okay, yeah. So, I what I thought was interesting, I had I didn't make this connection until I got to chapter 35 and was um going through the the wiki with it as well, but the the debt repayment that Edgewise mentions uh has a similar kind of operates on a similar concept and and I've I've been thinking about that now. Uh, as it relates to the conversation we've been having, because, you know, Edgewise um, talks about when he's talking to, to Cherry Coke, he says, uh, why damn, Rev, just write me another note. What's it matter with the color of the paper? Who has any cash anyway? Business then in this province, wagering included, was conducted overwhelmingly by way of credit. The flow of cash was not as important as character, duty, a complex structure of debt in which favors, forgiveness, ignominy uh, were much more likely than any repayment in specie. So I, I've, that's been on my brain since we started having our conversation about power. And I, I, it's kind of come to me that that's another form of power that is exercised over people to keep them in check and keep them complacent and keep them in your pocket is that, that system of credit that exists now. Um, and so it, it's, it's interesting because it does kind of operate on that fundamental kind of strangeness that the watch does where there's nothing really there. It's all working on, the idea that it's working it is really what's driving it mm-hmm. so yeah it I, I just thought that was that kind of just came to me in, in thinking about our our previous discussion so uh but then ultimately you know as we know the watch ends up in the stomach of uh of rc and i want to get to that name uh in a little bit as well but i um i loved that scene i thought it was it was really funny it reminded me of the the gold watch scene from Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. So I, I was kind of playing that in my mind as I was reading it, but um, it, that there's a whole, I, I, I had all these little notes that I set aside on, in my book 
um, while I was reading that. So there's, yeah, that connection to, to Pulp Fiction, which considering that movie came out in 94, I don't know when, you know, Pinchon came up with that, that specific concept, but I just thought that was an interesting little connection there. Um, but the other kind of pop culture connection that I was curious on is uh, the, the, the watch speaks to Dixon in his dreams uh, and takes the form of a vegetable. And in his discussion with Professor Vohm about it later, um, it, it was, I was constantly thinking, was Pinchon listening to, there's a, there's a Frank Zappa song on the first Mothers of Invention album called Colony Vegetable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I was wondering if that had some sort of influence, because there's a line at the very end of that song that says, Colin will come to you, covered with dew, vegetables dream of responding to you, standing there shiny and proud by your side, holding your hand while, their neighbors, while the neighbors decide, why is a vegetable something to hide? Um, just this, the weird specificity of it taking the form of a vegetable, I yeah. thought was so specifically chosen. And I know, given what we know of, of, of Pinchon, I, I would have to imagine he's a Zappa fan. So yeah, just kind of curious if there's a connection there. I'm glad I wasn't the only one who noticed that. Cause I, I had actually just purchased absolutely free on vinyl. There's a used copy that came to a local store of mine that I nice. listened to. Yeah, like a, a couple of weeks before getting to this section, and that was immediately what came into my mind too. And I have no doubt that uh, that Pinchon would have been a fan of Zappa, especially probably that period of Zappa. Yeah, uh, yeah. in in particular. Um, so I'm glad I wasn't the only one who clocked that. I'm glad I wasn't either. <laughs> so I actually have an entirely different um, pop culture reference with regard to that exact exchange. Oh, oh cool. Okay. So I. It, it connected to me to the original version of The Thing called The Thing from Another World in oh, 1951. Okay. Sure. Free John Carpenter version. Not yeah. the Carpenter version. Yeah. The original story? The, the original yeah, one. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where, where he's, where, where The Thing is a giant carrot, essentially, that has evolved into the ability to take the form of other beings. See, I haven't, I'm only familiar with Carpenter's. I know, yeah. I know that it's a story that existed before the, the movie, but now I'm going to have to go look into this. This is yeah. The original yeah. story is called Who Goes There. Uh, yeah, I don't think good. this is actually part of Who Goes There. I've, I've skimmed Who Goes There, and I haven't seen the thing from another world, but I know a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, the, 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 in the John Carpenter thing, Blair's character in The Thing from Another World... It essentially goes on in the scene where, you know, in the 1982 version, he's looking at the, the computer graphics. He's talking about how, um, oh, this thing is essentially a, a vegetable that has grown the ability to, to, to eat other things. And it just seemed incredibly resonant there. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, point. it very well could be that, too. I, I, we kind of know he has a, an, a, an affinity for horror films. So... Um, damn, I hadn't thought about that. I'm gonna have to go look into that. Thank you for bringing that up. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. The the other thing that the that the watch conversation brought to mind for me is that RC is as as the Pynchon Wiki mentions. You know, it sounds like just kind of at RC. RC. <laughs> yeah. But it it also, I mean, it means remote control in our modern day parlance. And I think it, I don't I don't know what specifically you're supposed to get out of it, but it seems very resonant the idea that remote control ingests time mm-hmm. and can't remove That's time from itself. Interesting. Yeah. 
that somehow somehow either time is remote control or that which is remote control does use time in uh in a, in an in unreversible fashion see i hadn't thought about that and that was going to be my follow-up question is if y'all had any theories on the rc um the name itself because i yeah. you know as you mentioned well the the wiki only has that mention of of ours and so i couldn't really think of anything but that's the remote control idea i like that yeah well especially given what we had already discussed with with the usage of led in the first chapters mm-hmm. and then uh, given the fact that in a way this surveyor does end up having his life controlled by the thing that he ingests like he can't sleep for a while it kind of ruins his marriage like it being inside of him really does begin to take control of a lot of aspects of his life that that does resonate that that potential explanation yeah. for it i wouldn't be surprised if that's what he was doing yeah and, and f- furthermore there there's uh, the later in the next chapter there's the discussion of how they're all at this um gambling house having a good time but all the people who'd spent a lot of time in philadelphia are constantly checking the time on their watches and um, besides that, in chapter 32, there's um, this paragraph, which I'm not going to read the whole thing, but by early youth, R.C. had become the kind of mean, ornery cuss his neighbors associated with years of maturity. Twas his profession did it to him. As a young surveyor from the rude shocks attending his first boundary dispute, he understood that he must exercise his art among the most litigious people on earth. And that, you know, the, the way that capital is used as a euphemism for control and preterition and all these things are tied together it seems like um that that if you want to mind these like four or five pages about rc and the watch i think you could get a lot of specific social critique out of it well there you go i i think that's a a really great theory um Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go back after we after record and reread that section with that in mind yeah um that section did also contain one of my favorite kind of funny moments where uh just kind of at the end of of the explanation um emerson describes it as um for within it lies a secret mechanism that will revolutionize the world of horology and dixon's response is a calculates when she's overcharging and by how much something like that and emerson doesn't even like wreck he doesn't even clock the joke pun intended there um but he you know he he just moves on from it and just like what it does do plutonian emerson told him patiently is never stop i just i i always love a good joke where the joke is told and no one cares Mm -hmm. and it just leaves the you know leaves the teller of that joke standing there looking stupid um so that was I, i just love that little moment that was a good one i did i did also enjoy the moment in there where uh someone tries to reach inside of him to uh to feel the watch or remove it and it's it's like mutated or is and bites him yeah it's turning into something else that that definitely brought up the the point that luke made about some of the cyberpunk influences on on this book uh that we talked about several episodes ago definitely thinking about it with with the thing in mind it also kind of could tie into that now as well now that i'm thinking about that Mm -hmm. um so the other thing i wanted to bring up in chapter 32 was um the delaware triangle the wedge um really the only thing i I wanted to mention about that was i I just thought it was interesting given the at the start of the america section we had reference to the geometric scars that mark the earth 
Um, and that's essentially how the, the Delaware Triangle or the wedge is described. It's um, indeed the oddness of demarcation here. The inscriptions made upon the body of the earth, primitive as designs pricked by an Iroquois with a thorn and supply of soot upon his human body. Um, I just thought that was an, an interesting little throwback to that, that idea that, you know, by, by marking the earth in the way we are, you know, what impact is it having either physically or metaphysically in, in some cases? Yeah. The, what, going back to kind of how Kate had mentioned these being difficult chapters, that section is, is incredibly difficult for me to really untangle. And it, it, it is really meaningful to me and in, in a sense that I can't actually understand it all. But it, it is just uh, evocative of a deep kind of uh, geological dread, I suppose. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of describing it. And that's actually a kind of a situation I've found myself in when trying to describe parts of Pinchon's books to people who are not familiar with his work, where it's, it's, a, it's this phenomenon where I can... I can understand how it impacts me, but I can't articulate how it impacts me. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's almost like frustrating and maddening because I want to, I want to, you know, sell people on, on this, on this writing and, and what it means to me, but I can't put the words together in, in a way that does it well enough other than just saying, go read the book. Um, but even then I can't guarantee that they're going to have the same experience with it that I have. Yeah, th this entire section uh, is in some way, and I think it has a lot to do with the watches. And I, I have not spent enough time on these sections to, to really get to the root of what my mind is working on here. But there's something about the, the talk of watches and time and the way that throughout these section, this section, time chronology of the chapters of the book just break down. You have the... It, it's it's a much more uh, tangible aspect in the rest of his big novels, but in this particular section of Mason and Dixon, time does not give you any anything. You you know a year passes in the space of a couple of paragraphs, and then you have mm -hmm. an entire chapter dedicated to a, like a ten minute conversation, and you have all of these things happening out of order. Um, with like Tenebrae having the, the boundary lines of Delaware explained to her at some weird point in time where no one else is in the parlor room. It's just her and Wick's Cherry Coke chatting about maps for some reason. <laughs> well, I think the other interesting thing is is in this section, there's a brief aside where it mentions that the watch is trying to speak, but it can't, like it can't either formulate the words or it can't make an audible sound, which reminded me of when the two clocks on the ship were talking yeah. to one another. Um, there, there does seem to be something to your point, Will, that, that Pinchon is, is working at and that either time seems to, to function differently here or that because of isolation or something like that, um, time is not able to be accurately kept or the, the existence of this, this perfect perpetual watch in league with nothing else like it is is alone counting time and and there's nothing to to balance it off against 
to to the point made, I believe, by Dixon Reese's like, well, if it's off, how would anybody know? And they don't they don't have an answer for it. Um, yeah, it's an it's an interesting thing that I I tried to find somebody discussing it, and it, it, most of the time it's just brought up within context of yeah, this section comprises about a year, and now we're gonna move on. Like th- there hasn't been much of a of a deep dive in that, but I, I agree in that it does seem as though Pinchon is reaching for something, but I I'm not I'm not sure what it is. So chapter thirty three. Um, for me, a, a lot of that chapter just dealt with the, the detail related to measuring everything out and, um, and plotting out, you know, how the, how the lines work and all that. Um, let me go to that section real quick. Cause I had a couple of things I did want to bring up. Oh, there was, okay. So there was a scene at the, in the beginning part of it is on page 329, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing cause it's pretty long, but it, it's the, it's starting with at least I am about my business in the honest light of God's day. Um, when, when they're at the, um, uh, what is the name of the, the Janvier's, um, they're having the discussion with the quote unquote pious gentleman. Um, and, and, and the discussion is, you know, happening while they're consuming these massive amounts of coffee and, um, it's the, you know, the smoky environment. It, it, what it brought to my mind was Jim Jarmusch's coffee and cigarettes film. I don't mm. know if any of y'all have seen that, but okay. just that, um, the, the idea of, of these, you know, intense discussions happening uh, over coffee and cigarettes, or in, in this case, you know, cigars or whatever other tobacco products they happen to have. But, um, it, it's always such a really interesting, I, I find it very cinematic that, that idea of having a conversation in that particular kind of setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, cigarette smoke it always has that air of mystique to it. And, there, and there's a certain beauty to it, I think as well, that especially on film um, really lends itself to um, certain types of conversation. And, and that's that particular scene just kind of put that into my mind. Also made me really want a cigarette and I quit doing that a long time ago. So that was yeah. a bit of a struggle. <laughs> I quit doing that a while ago. Funny enough, while watching coffee and cigarettes, I was like, I'm going to watch, <laughs> I'm going to watch this movie. And when it's over, I'm also done smoking. And I smoked through most of that film. It's hard not to. I would imagine. I, I haven't yeah. watched it since I quit, but absolutely. One thing that came up in that, uh, that article I was talking about, um, which I don't, I didn't find this necessarily super original or anything, but it did, uh, the the author of that article that goes into Dixon's frustrations over race relations also went into the role of um, pubs and coffee houses in I think in terms of like um, political movements and stuff like that and he kind of got into how like those like whenever they started whenever pubs and coffee houses started to open and come about, at least in England. Uh, I want to say he linked it to the 13th century, although it could be a little bit later. He did talk a lot about the importance of those kinds of institutions um, in in terms of fostering the idea, even just the idea of uh, free speech and um, being able to go someplace and speak your mind and not worry about the consequences for it. Uh, which I do think it. I I found it interesting to think about. It wasn't ever anything that I consciously had thought about. Um, 
you know, going to a bar or going to a coffee house with your friends and being able to speak your mind without censoring yourself. Uh, I think a lot of times we take that kind of stuff for granted nowadays, especially in America, uh, not necessarily in other countries, maybe as much. Uh, but I just find that interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. I, I work for a coffee company and a big part of our culture is trying to create that environment where people can can like meet in a place that is not their home and connect over good conversation and things like that. I used to have a lot of those kind of moments, you know, of, of not necessarily at specifically at coffee houses, but a lot of times I had friends of mine and I that would, you know, very, very late at night uh, would be playing video games at two or three in the morning. And we'd find these kind of all night diners around and, and go there and just have these really, um, just like unfiltered and, and really interesting discussions over, you know, sometimes just a cup of coffee and, and a pack of cigarettes. And um, it's one of those weird things where you don't really appreciate it so much at the time, but when you can look back on it, it, you know, you really value that. Yeah. That, that was a lot of how I spent my free time in college too, was a lot of going to the 24 hour diner and just sitting and talking with whoever came in the door. And it it is interesting to see how, how how that is a, a long standing tradition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, there there's this bar in my town that it's the only bar that I go to. And it's it's kind of like cheers times like a thousand in that <laughs> the only people who really go there are people who only go there. Like <laughs> It's yeah. it's it's nearby the liberal arts university, so sometimes there's there's some trickle in of like students, but for the most part, because it's the last bar on like the main street in the town that I live in, it's it's mostly populated by the same people, and it it is always noted for like the the type of conversation that you can get in with uh, other sort of regulars or semi regulars there, um, and I've had some of the most profound discussions of my life there, definitely, and it's 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 nice to have like a fixture whether it's a late night diner or a coffee shop or a bar or whatever where you have that space to 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 freely just get into good conversation with people it's it's super lacking in the the 21st century where we can all just kind of communicate with our phones or other other means of connection you know there's something not quite uh the same as as a, as a face to face chat usually late at night uh you know over mm -hmm. over some shared uh, communal drink or, or cigarettes or something like that or, or at the very least like a, a day's work so everyone's a little tired and fed up yeah. with things no one really has the patience to censor themselves even if they would rather they're in, in their right mind yeah absolutely um really the only uh, unless anybody else has anything from that from chapter 33 that they wanted to bring up i had already the only other thing i had marked was the um the dialogue between Harland and, and Mason and Dixon that we already kind of talked about with the accuracy of astronomical measurements. Um, did anybody else have anything for this chapter they wanted to touch on? Well, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, Cody and Luke, mm -hmm. since you've read Against the Day, is Rose Quartz brought up in Against the Day in a significant moment? I don't remember Rose Quartz. I remember the Icelandic Spar, yeah. um, obviously, is, is the big one, but I don't recall Rose Quartz. It, it for some reason something something about one in one of those earlier sections of against the day i like one of the miles scenes or something i don't know i don't know what it is but for some it reason might it's have catching been something. yeah but I, I don't know 
I do think that there is some type of connection there. Although I would expect the pension wiki to perhaps pick up on that. If so, um, that's I what I'm checking right now. Yeah, quartz definitely does come up in against the day. I just don't know if the adjective rose, like the color rose, is is included in the in the and those mentions is what I'm blanking on right now. Yeah, it's the, yeah. in particular it's that you might be transported beneath the sea under the northern ice section. Really, it really reminds me of against the day there, and it might just be, you know, calcite is very similar to quartz, and you know a lot of stuff happens in the Arctic up there in that book. So I don't know. Well, and and also under the surface as well. So yeah, could just be a confluence of all of those. So in in chapter thirty four, and and I apologize because it's I'm going to take things back to a dark place again for a little bit here. The I, I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on the, um, I guess the the owners or the whoever would claim ownership of the silver star, the inverted star that's mentioned, um, on the tavern sign that that Mason and Dixon see. Um, it's described as uh, the weapon depicted black upon white is notable for the device upon its stock, a silver star of five points reverse with a two point up and one down, a sure sign of evil at work, universally recognized as the horns of the devil. Um, it's something that was mentioned earlier in um, in the book. I don't remember the specific page. The, the Pinch on Wiki mentions the specific page it was brought up on. Um, but I don't think it's ever... It, it's not clearly stated, at least up to this point, it's not clearly stated um, who's meant to be represented by that symbol. Um, and it's not, it, it's not the KKK, because that's 100 years in the future uh, that that group organizes so i'm not sure if y'all had any thoughts on you know who the uh the owners quote-unquote of that would have been i mean it could be a a, like a a proto kkk thing uh and there are anachronisms in this book that's true because they are mentioned as white horsemen i think it's page 101 uh was was where it was earlier mentioned and that's where they're referred to as the white horsemen that's so that's what got me thinking about the kkk but then the time didn't match but you're right yeah there's a lot of anachronisms um in his work so very well could be yeah i definitely felt very deliberately referential to the kkk i'm not sure it's supposed to be owned by anybody in particular i think it's just supposed to be a sign i mean it's literally when they see what is upon the tavern sign yeah it's a little lampshaded so chapter 34 also has and we you know again to go back to the um the the Paxton boys and, and the, uh, the atrocities that they uh, carried out, and not just them, but you know, going back to our initial conversation at the beginning of the episode, just in general, the atrocities in America, uh, especially against the indigenous people. Um, there's a quote in here that I, I really loved um, when they're in this larger conversation with Jabez um, about what happened, and he's you know, basically telling him, like, you guys came here... Um, you know, why, why are you bringing all this up? You know, this is just the way things are. And um, Dixon says, these were said to be harmless, helpless people, Dixon points out, in some miraculous way that does not draw challenge or insult in return. Apprehensive among these folk, Mason, who would have perhaps used one adjective fewer, regards his Geordie partner with a strange gaze, bordering upon respect. They were blood relations of men who slew blood relations of ours, Jabez explains. Then if you know who did it, for the Lord's sake, why did you not go after them? This hurt them more, smiles a certain oily Leon, fingering his frizzin and flint. Aye, they go on living, but without dear old grandmom. Puts a big hole in the blanket, don't it? That is just some of the darkest, um, 
dialogue, I think, in this book. And it, it's, it's insanely impactful because that is the mindset of the people who were doing these things. And to articulate it in that way, I think, was just profoundly haunting. Um, and, and I mean, it, wor- it, gets the, it gets Penchon's message across, you know, and I think that is done so, uh, so well. But that little exchange just like, took me back. I had to put the book down for a minute and just really stop because that's such a horrific thing for a human being to say. Yeah, I don't think I can add anything to that. Well, it, it seems in particular this this time period, based on Against the Day, blood feuds were a big deal in Pynchon's mind, the, the, as we know them today. The, the concept of these familial generational disputes where kin killing kin is viewed as um, equal to uh, the wronger being killed by the wrongy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it seems to me like the... the the most simple way to describe what a blood feud is, is hurt some more. Might as well just do what hurts some more. Yeah. I mean, it, absolutely. It's just so, it, I don't know. I, I, I just, I can't imagine the process of coming up with that, that dialogue. And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a writer, so it's not my job to do that. And he does it so effectively. Um, it's just, a. I, th- I think it's just such a juxtaposition because I'm we're so used to talking about Pinchon's prose in uh, his ability to kind of convey beautiful imagery a lot of times, and I think that's you could probably make that argument with a lot of authors, but it takes a really talented author as well to show the horror and things like that in an eloquent way that is is done here. And the thing that, the thing about that section that that makes it disgusting is. To me, at least, is the it is how somebody would think about it. It's not some like scheming villain who's like, "Yes, we shall kill all of them." They just kind of want to get their revenge, and they want to hit them where it hurts. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, it's you know, thanks Hannah Arendt, the the banality of evil is really what what makes it sting sometimes, like here. So moving on from, uh, from that, um, well, actually, I, have, I did have one other thing I wanted to bring up. And I, I think it's, it was uh, interesting, I think, that we read this section at, at this time of the year, with, with 4th of July being yesterday as we're recording this. Um, because when I was reading... Uh, this this particular chapter with you know going through the the mention of um, the, the atrocities committed by the Paxton boys and you know everything else that came up prior to it. Um, in in looking at that part of history today or yesterday rather, and and you know this time where we're supposed to celebrate our country and 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 all the great things that it's done. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that we have this celebration or this, this, we're supposed to have this pride, uh, in, in the country that we come from, despite not having anything to do with, you know, how we got there necessarily. Like we're, you know, I, I can speak for myself and say I was born here. I had no, you know, way of deciding where I was going to be from. Um, 
but to to have this overt sense of pride in spite of all the horrors that have been committed uh in the past in the name of making this country what it is it's it's really hard to to do that in in knowing that history you know what i mean like it's um there's certainly things to be proud of that that we have done as a country you know i think that goes without saying but i think it's also important to look back and and think about the not great things that we've done as well well and i think that that's i think that's part of what pinchon wants to do with this book yeah yeah yeah, absolutely in that you know he he was a very socially and historically aware writer of 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 a frankly shocking amount of 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 the world's history and and import um and i think he uses his writing very effectively to try and showcase those things to to hold a mirror to his audience and be like I think I think you need to do some thinking about where you come from and 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 the history of the place where you come from. Uh, and, he, and he does it in a way that that feels very effortless and does not feel preachy, but is instead there to inspire or kind of spur on introspection and, and personal sort of responsibility to learn, which I really appreciate. And so that kind of leads into uh, chapter 35 and, and the opening part. Um, I, I absolutely love this, this little opening section from, uh, from Wix about how history is, is presented and, and, um, it's such a, a well-written passage about, you know, who, who records history and, and how we decide, um, how it's presented, you know, in, 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 in the future to the people that it is presented to. That's a terrible way of phrasing it, but um, it's, I, I don't know, it was a really, um, I went back and read it probably two or three times just to kind of really soak all of it in. Yeah, I, I kind of read that, that passage as, in a sense, Pynchon declaring, I'm doing history here. It's not mm-hmm. the thing that everybody treats history as, but that's what this is. This is what the work of history is it's going back and it's take dragging up things that you care about things that you think are relevant things that you think need to be remembered and then mm-hmm. you know nowadays as he says her practitioners to survive must learn must soon learn the arts of the quidnock spy and taproom wit and what was he but a spy and to a large degree a taproom wit yep yeah that the yeah, end that whole Man, I, I went back and read that particular paragraph that that quote comes from, Will, I think probably three times, just because there is such a simple understanding of of the reality of, of history and of truth and how it changes and, and gets moved around and forgotten and that in order for it to survive and actually continue on it, it needs to adapt these almost human qualities. And yeah, just the way he portrays that through that singular paragraph and and this last chapter sort of as a whole is you know we talk about it all the time it, it's one of these moments that just kind of stops you dead in your tracks and makes you appreciate what an incredibly talented author he is and how considered he is in what he's doing at all times because it can feel like he throws a lot at you and that it, you know you're kind of 
you're kind of stuck in in the waves of it all, so to speak. But if you learn to let yourself just kind of surf on his words by paying close attention to them, it's it's so incredibly rewarding to experience. Yeah. So I wanted to get y'all's thought on this, uh, and this is just a, a quick aside, but the, the mention of Baron Munchausen got me thinking about uh, Terry Gilliam's film. Um, and it, that led me to thinking about Terry Gilliam potentially doing a Pinchon adaptation and which one he could do mm. um I, I i've this has been kind of rattling around in my brain for the last couple of days and i'm not sure just i would have to throw back to early gilliam i just i the newer movies of his i've seen haven't really had the same uh impact that is his or like brazil and and time bandits and baron munchausen had but um i i think really the only one that i could think of him potentially doing would be Vineland. Yeah, that was the first one that came to mind. I, I would also want to see his version of Inherent Vice. Um, yeah. I think it, there was, I was, some, I was, that occurred to me as well, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I would not change a single thing about the version of Inherent Vice we got, but I would be very curious what Terry Gilliam's adaptation of that book would be like. But yeah, second to Inherent Vice w- was definitely Vineland in my mind as far as what he could adapt. Have you all seen Gilliam's uh, The Zero Theorem? I have. I actually really like that film. Yeah, I, Gilliam. I, yeah. Gilliam's my favorite director in general. Um, I've, I've seen everything except for, I think, Tideland, which I've heard is really bad. It's not um, great. It yeah, doesn't but feel I, like a Gilliam film. Yeah, no. there, are, there are some similarities between Bleeding Edge and The Zero Theorem. It, it just now occurred to me. Yeah, I hadn't thought about mm-hmm. that. The, with the virtual reality and different stuff like that. Yeah, he would be able to do some very interesting stuff with the the virtual virtual reality space and the, all the stuff with Gabriel Ice in particular. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think there's a little bit of crossover at least between the Zero Theorem and Bleeding Edge. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's good. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a big enough fan of his to have a strong opinion, but maybe his earlier um, his earlier self. I actually could see him doing Mason and Dixon. Y- younger Gilliam. I don't. I don't want to see yeah. him nowadays. Yeah, his earlier good. stuff has a lot of. He did Jabberwocky, which is a period oh, piece. Jabberwocky is great. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I mean, he do, he does have. He at least used to have. I guess. Uh, I don't. Know, I guess uh, the new one or the newest one, the one about Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. I guess is I also somewhat a period. It's kind of a period piece in some ways. Yeah, it's on well, Peacock, his... I think. By the way, is it's, it? It, yeah. Okay. I know it's, that was it, the one he's been trying to make for forever and just yeah. never could. It's it's entertaining, but the development hell of it definitely comes across in the final product. Yeah, drags out so long. I mean, eventually you're going to lose that that creative momentum that you had. Adam Driver's great, though. Oh yeah, oh is he? He's Don Quixote. He isn't Don Quixote. He's uh, Sancho Panza. Yeah. Oh okay. All right, that makes about as much sense. (laughs) <laughs> or like yeah, like a like a weird like bastardized version of Sancho Panza, yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So getting getting back on track. Um. So I had a question for y'all regarding uh, at the top of page three fifty. Um. There's the mention. It says um, Herodotus being the godfather of all and his refusal to utter the name of a certain Egyptian deity. The Pinchon Wiki literally just has three question marks for that. Um. And I was, the first place my mind went to was the reference to Thoth in Lot 49. 
Um, and I was reminded when I, when I was looking into it um, to try to verify how on track I might have been with that. Um, the uh, Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum mentions that Thoth was credited with creating the art of writing, inventing the calendar, and controlling space and time. So it's, it seems to be a somewhat logical fit, but I, I can't, you know, I, I don't certainly have the ability to say with certainty that that's who he's referencing. Yeah, and Thoth does, um, which I, I think I've talked about during our Crying of Lot 49 episodes, but um, Thoth was important to the, like, Jack Parsons, and I can't remember the other guy. I think Will will probably be able to come up with the name. The, Alistair Crowley. Yeah, I mean, Crowley, he yeah. does, yeah, Thoth, I think, does have uh, a place in their, like, uh, theology or ideology or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, to, to put it incredibly briefly, Thoth is viewed as the same person as Hermes, who is viewed as the same person mm-hmm. as Horus, who is viewed as the same person as Osiris in a very specific branch of esoteric um, religion. And it, 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 he, he is Thoth and slash Hermes is, is viewed as uh, essentially like the, the, the image in which Jesus and Muhammad and all of the other prophets um, took inspiration from. And so, uh, yeah, Herodotus not not being willing to utter the name of truth. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's Thoth. And then I had a couple other things that I wanted to bring up. The, um, oh, the mention of the invisible snake trick. That was another one, the, the pinch on wiki. Didn't really have anything on. I couldn't really come up with anything on that either. I don't know if any, if any of y'all had any thoughts on that. I did uh, kind of look that up a little bit ago, and uh, Deleuze, uh, which is a proper noun in there, is linked with the flute. And then I did link that to like playing a flute. Uh, I guess it would. I think it was like a flute-like thing where you would do snake charming. Okay. Um. So maybe. I mean, I don't. Obviously, that I'm not exactly sure what that has to do with us with the the snake being invisible necessarily. Um, another thought I had about that is that it does seem like there is some like kind of a romantic uh, like undertone in in this section, uh, or like a, a like the it does seem like there's a little bit of like the different family members are kind of vying for the attention of of the female cousin. I want to say uh, I think the Pynchon Wiki. I want to say, or maybe it's that listserv I keep referencing. Um, we're talking a little bit about how Cherry Coke himself seems at least somewhat interested in the in the female cousin. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I interpreted it at first as basically what you just said, Luke, with the idea of it being like somebody doing a, a snake charming routine, but with no snake as like a weird get up. Um, but I could also see it with with that uh, the sensuousness in mind. Yeah, I could see it as being um, more of a uh, kind of a sex performance of some kind too. That that wouldn't surprise me, especially with mm. the way Euphrenia kind of generally talks about her past. That was what I picked up off of there too, as well. That makes sense. Yeah, it feels very. I'm going to talk about something that is taboo for the time period, so I need to come up with a different way to describe it. Which also comes up earlier in the in the book with Mason at the the hanging and a few different parts. I think have some double entendres. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Can I just say that I really love the way that this this chapter segues from a stupid argument, like, and I don't mean as in the the conversation shouldn't be had, but I mean that Ives and um, the other uncle, whatever, uh, are, are just kind of asshats throughout the entire conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, like Ethelmer and um, Wix and even Euphrenia and Tenebrae are trying to like actually think clearly about these kinds of things. But um, segues directly from that into like this long, maybe allegory about progress situated as like a ride in an early Model T. <laughs> Except that the segue is literally just, oh my god, this is Peach Brandy from Octorara. <laughs> and it, you don't ever, are. you don't get anything about it until the very end, when it's just literally like, yeah. And then I just started drinking some brandy. Yeah. Uh, well, and I'm glad you you mentioned um, Ives uh, and God. I can't remember the other uncle for the life of me now. Um, just being complete asses um, because I I loved. Uh, I was going to bring this up when we do our our funny parts, but I'll just go ahead and bring it up now. Uh, Ives' attack on, on the novel, um, which I just thought was a really funny uh, description of it with his uh, insistence of it being this horrible uh, society-destroying thing. But at the beginning of his, his uh, rant, he sounds like Foghorn Leghorn, which I <laughs> imagine was intentional. That's, um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> It's so I want to read the quote because it's I, this whole thing is just hilarious to me. It's so as as if having just detected a threat to the moral safety of the company, Ives announces, "quote I cannot, damn, I cannot, I say, energetically enough, insist upon the danger of reading these storybooks, in particular those known as novel. Let she who hears heed Britain's bedlam, even as the French uh, salpeter, I probably horribly pronounce that, uh, being populated by an alarming number of young persons, most of them female, seduced across the sill of madness by the, these irresponsible narratives that will not distinguish between fact and fancy. How are those frail minds to judge? Alas, every reader of novel must be reckoned a soul in peril, for she hath made a devil's bargain, squandering her most precious time for nothing in return but the meanest and shabbiest kinds of mental excitement. Romance, pernicious enough in its day, seems in comparison wholesome. I have to imagine that was just a ton of fun for Penjon to write. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many great lines in that piece of dialogue. I don't see how it couldn't. Like, there's so many good ones to point out. Yes, obviously, the beginning is a foghorn leghorn thing. But as someone who works mostly with people younger than herself, like the phrase an alarming number of young persons <laughs> is is what I feel every day I walk into work and every day I I I engage with the teenagers that work in the coffee shop that I work in that the youth yeah it, it, this is an alarming number of young persons <laughs> I'm well, glad I don't have to deal with that <laughs> well, you know it, it it's a lot of you know uh, response to the same things that like Don Quixote was going off our previous conversation but also it you know it is in some sense him him saying all right all right me if you're gonna say that you're writing these histories in the form of these fiction novels you're gonna have to at least point out the fact that sometimes people are gonna take your lies for truths mm -hmm. for example I if you look up Operation Blackwing, which if you've read Gra Gravity's Rainbow, is a pretty important part 
Well, there is apparently, I just found this out, apparently a Star Wars old extended universe novel which talks about uh, an, an operation which uses the same code name. Well, if you look into the, the blogs that talk about that Star Wars novel, they have taken Gravity's Rainbow for fact. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, in, you know, just as an example, clearly he's aware that, you know, it's possible that the frail minds can't judge. So what, okay, I wanted to get y'all's opinion on the, there's a little um, interjection when Wix is telling a story um, where it says, we believe you, Wix, we do, pray, go on. Um, do you take that as the, the family, not, they're not believing Wix and they're just trying to like placate him and, oh yeah, we believe you, we believe you. Or is it more Wix doubting himself and, and they're trying to like, you know, encourage him to keep telling the story. Uh, it could be just the fact that maybe Pynchon thought that, uh, or, you know, Wix himself thinks that maybe he's belaboring his point a little bit. And then he seems a little bit self-conscious. So they're just like, you know, like, you know, you don't have to belabor this point anymore. That's yeah, how I interpreted it. Same here. And the last thing I wanted to bring up as far as uh, the plot itself, um, we, we get at the end of the chapter um, a, a pretty good example of uh, Pinchon's feelings towards uh, real estate. Uh, we kind of touched on this earlier uh, in the episode, and uh, to kind of foreshadow, uh, we got an email from Brett. Uh, he touches on this as well, but... Um, you know, in this story and then also in, in Lot 49 and very much so in, in Inherent Vice, um, we get this um, a real real sense of, of Pinchon's disdain for, you know, real estate investments and, and how all that plays out. Um, the the whole scene where uh, the the taking over of, of land is, is mentioned, it starts with uh, Grote, one of the farmers whose land adjoins the Red Singer's has long coveted their farm and furthermore believes that both farms are located in Maryland. And it goes on to kind of talk about, like, detail out how, you know, this land was taken out from uh, the uh, the landowner. And in a, in a wider, you know, you pull out in a wider scope, of, you know, the, the land taken from the, the indigenous tribes that, that were here prior to European settlement. Um, and it's, you know, it's obviously a big important part of of this story and other of, of Pinchon's stories as well and i think it's something that um I, I think a lot of people nowadays don't really consider i think we're, we're the people who are involved in real estate are so caught up in uh in making money and and um wheeling and dealing and and are you know similar to as as it's described in this you know are not necessarily attentive to the the impact that this kind of transaction has on on people um both in a in a micro and a macro scale yeah i i, I agree i mean th this particular topic always comes back to that line from lot 49 for me where the person says that even the dead persist in a bottle of wine when talking about you know the the dandelion wine made from the the wildflowers that grew on the the grave site that was plowed over for a freeway that was never built mm -hmm. um yeah, I, 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 and I think that that 
that phrase, this idea of <clears throat> the endless expansion and selling of, of land and all of that, that that Pinchon clearly hates, can't erase what came before and the human cost of it. Um, and that's that's always what what I go back to is that 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 very simple sentence that is is quite damning from that book because it can yeah. be in, it it can be interpreted very literally as it is in that book, but it can also be um, certainly applied to 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 moments like this where we read about squatters eventually completely you know eradicating a, a tribe of Native Americans for for their land and for that that great expansion, which then later would get divided up into to plots for housing and business. Yeah. And and that's not even to mention the the ecological impact. Yeah. Uh, that it has. Uh did y'all have anything else you wanted to bring up as far as uh plot or anything? Or should we move on to the humor? Well you have you have this note here at the end, uh the, the oh, totally... machine is being referred yes. to at the, the end of the chapter. I I took that um and it it brought me back to the conversation that we had at like the very first episode or second episode where we were talking about deism and this idea of of God is just something that is is just a, an entity or something that created this clock, this this device that he turned on and then just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is sort of the takeaway that I had to it, that yes, time is definitely part of the machine that he's referring to there, but that the machine is almost this reality that was set up to run for everybody. And the fact that the fact that there's a specific mention of like a conductor on a track that you can't find, like there, there is something guiding it, but you, you can't see the conductor. You can't talk to him. Um, you know, it's, it's a great quote and perhaps we should just read it. Uh, but it, it really reminded me of the deistic viewpoint of, of creation and the, the actual, religious idea there especially coming from somebody who was a religious figure and then kind of faded out of that it feels like a a very deliberate reference to deism to to me anyway yeah and and beyond that i see it a lot as a discussion of you know the the control forces that pinchon is always discussing in his works yeah, you know that mm-hmm. he, yep. you know, as he as he goes to great lengths to describe, he doesn't think that there's some secret cabal controlling everything. He doesn't think that conspiracy conspiracy theories or conspiratorial thinking is the right way to go. But he definitely seems to believe that if you're going to try and understand the world around you, that's the only way you're going to get anywhere close. But in reality, well, yeah. it's and it's it's especially relevant to Mason Dixon's musing on why yeah. they were brought together. And yeah. Yeah. like whether or not it was something that needed to happen or was always going to happen or fate or whatever. And despite both of them being religious and scientists, neither of them have an answer for it. It's just it's something that they have to, to give themselves over to. Yeah. And it's clear that Cherry Coke's opinion, even if it's not exactly Pynchon's, is that nothing brought them together. They just happened to run into each other, whatever it was that set them in motion. Mm hmm. In in thinking about it, when y'all were just talking about that, it it you know made me kind of think about. Uh, there's I was having a, a conversation with my son the other day about. Um, he was asking about, um, kind of in a roundabout way, the meaning of life 
Um, and we were, so I, I, you know, I parted ways with religion a long time ago. Um, and so we're, we're kind of always telling him and my daughter, like, you, you know, believe what you want to believe as long as you are a good person and you can, you know, you can back up whatever you believe in with something that allows you to articulate it, then that's cool. Whatever. But he was asking about like kind of the meaning of life. And I was thinking about a quote from, um, Dan Barker, um, who I saw speak a long time ago. Uh, he was a, uh, former minister and, and left the faith and, and has kind of gone on. He's kind of a more polite version of, of like the Dawkinses and Sam Harris's, uh, and Hitchens's. Um, but he, he mentioned in, in the speech that he gave that, um, when, when he was confronted with that, the whole argument of, you know, what the meaning of life is for, for someone who doesn't believe in any kind of deity, he said, you know, there, there's not really a meaning of life. There's meaning in life and it's, it's what you get from your experiences. It's, it's what you believe your purpose to be. And it doesn't matter, you know, what your faith is or anything like that. It's just, you know, what you take from this life defines what that meaning is. And, and in thinking about y'all's kind of description of that ending section there, um, kind of put me in mind of, of that again, that, you know, these, you can try and, and work out the, the machinations of the universe and, and how everything works. And honestly, we'll probably never know as, as advanced as science can ever get the likelihood of ever understanding fully the, the workings of the universe and everything is slim to none. And it's almost a futile chase when you could be pursuing, you know, other, it's worthwhile. Science is absolutely worthwhile. I have to put that out there. Um, but that you, you can't let that keep you from having those experiences that, that ultimately define the meaning of your, of life. Yeah, that's very poignant. Absolutely. Can we read the quote before we move into funny parts? I feel like we should. What machine is it, young Cherry Coke later bade himself goodnight, that bears us along so relentlessly? We go rattling through another day, another year, as through an empty town without a name. In the midnight, we have but memories of some pause at the pleasure spas of our younger day, the maidens, the cards, the claret. We seek to extend our stay, but now a silent functionary in dark livery indicates it is time to reboard the coach and resume the journey. Long before the destination, moreover, shall this machine come abruptly to a stop, gathered dense with fear, shall we open the door to confer with the driver, to discover that there is no driver, no horses, only the machine, fading as we stand, in a prairie of desperate immensity. That was going to be my, my quote quote, but I had decided on a different one uh, prior to that. But that is such a beautiful passage. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, or I was going to ask, actually, uh, whether throughout this entire book, the question h- hangs open, you know, whether how much of what is being told by Cherry Cokes is true and not necessarily is true, but how much of what he's saying is true to him. How much of this is true to him? Cause clearly he's not making up this random uh, put upon single mother, essentially like that. You know, she comes up later in the story and she's, you know, part of this world, but what, what is this carriage ride? Is, is this coach real? Did he actually take a coach ride that, didn't have a driver or horses that stranded them in the middle of the prairie? Or is this just a metaphor with some actual conversation as the, the kernel of truth? I, I think it's possible that he did take a carriage ride at some point, not necessarily that had no driver or, 
you know, those other details. But at a certain point in the carriage ride, he asked himself, what if there was no, you know, driver? What if, you know, what if this, what if that? And that kind of led his mind down the path that that quote kind of takes. That was how I kind of came away with it, because it's clear that at some point he had this epiphany that, you know, religious thinking or at least Christian religious thinking didn't have truth in it for him. And I could see this thought as it's expressed here being the sort of conversion point anyway, away from, from an idea of, of an, of an ordered reality with a, with a, a Judaistic worldview or, or a Judaistic deity at the head of it. Um, so I, I, I think it's, I think it works on, on, on both levels. I don't know if there was literally a, a you know driverless carriage that he was in at some point, but I think that likely at some point he did ride in a carriage and his his thoughts wandered towards the, the, the metaphor that we're kind of picking apart here at the end of the chapter. Yeah, the, I, I wouldn't treat it as anything but a metaphor yeah. based on the fact that it's all quotes at the end, except for he goes to such lengths to talk about how it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, even though that has nothing to do with anything else. And then he goes to it. it that is the only, that's the only time when he would have had the opportunity to survive off of Octorara peach brandy, which is the entire premise of telling the story is being stranded and having to survive off drinking nothing but brandy. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, it, it reads more as metaphor. Um, I, I, Kate pretty much summarized everything I would have said. All right. Thanks. Uh, all right. So what, uh, what stood out to y'all as far as the, the humor in, in this set of chapters? Um, what's, what's, so we've, we've talked about a fair amount of the things that I would have mentioned as we've gone through the episode, but there's one exchange in particular that uh, I love when they are once again on the farm talking to the man and his wife about what they're doing, where it just, it struck me as being the same kind of humor that I've seen in so many like movies or, or TV, especially in, in like modern time where there's, <laughs> they're sitting there talking to, to Harlan and his wife. And uh, it's exactly 15 miles due South of here. Dixon gently. We'll want to set up another post to mark the zero point or beginning of the west line. The point here in your field will tell what its longitude is, as well as the latitude of the south edge of Philadelphia. It ties those two facts together, you see. That wasn't my question. Mr. Tumbling fired his rifle at us, says Dixon. And what made you think I wouldn't? We gambled, suppose Mason and Dixon. And then his <laughs> wife comes in and says, I'll just fetch down the rifle, says Mrs. Harland. And just the that that interaction of like of you know like why did you come here and trying to initially bring up like this scientific point and then really revealing that it's just oh the last guy shot at us is is something that i feel like i've seen in curb your enthusiasm in particular a lot of times like that type of exchange um and so that that definitely made me made me laugh as as a funny moment that we we haven't already talked about yeah yeah i like that i like the comedy of that part a lot too yeah I, for mine, we kind of, you know, we touched on most of them. The only other one I, I wanted to bring up was um, to kind of bookend the, the quibbling at the, at the start of uh, chapter 31. At the end of chapter 33, 
Um, they have another little, um, I referred to it in my notes as a kind of a stereotypical married couple argument from a TV show or a movie. Uh, it's the last paragraph of, of page 340. Another holiday flare-up of many proceeding, which at first had sent Harlan's of all ages cringing against the walls or scrambling up the ladder, yet soon subsided to but one more sound of untamed nature to be grown, up, grown used out here, like thunder or certain animal mimicries at night from across a creek. Each time the surveyors apologize for their behavior, then presently are screaming again. Apologize, scream. Apologize, scream. Daily life in the Harland house grows jagged. After a Christmas-tide truce with the rest of the, har- of the winter waiting them, perhaps more of it than any can imagine themselves surviving with it, at, without at least one serious lapse in, the, in behavior, the surveyors decide to travel to Lancaster, perhaps in hopes that the imps of discord will fail to pursue them across the Susquehanna. So just that, that imagery of them just screeching at each other um, just uh, amuses me to no end. I think my favorite uh, comedic part was, I want to say it's in this section, um, the part where they enter like the, the uh, coffee house or pub where like the, the smoke and the, like the fumes from the coffee and everything are so full, like spill up the air so much that you can't see uh, other people. Um, And specifically the part where it's like, they talk about how there's so much coffee being ground that um, everyone kind of has like, you know, a contact high or like a caffeine high just from mm-hmm. entering into into the establishment. Um, it did kind of remind me of, I don't know if you all have seen This Is The End. Yeah. Kind of dumb, kind of awesome uh, comedy from 10 years ago. I love like the first 45 minutes of that movie. <laughs> yeah, because it reminded <laughs> me of the part where McLovin like blow, like Michael Sarah talks is like talking Michael Sarah was like a parody of himself is talking about how like he doesn't do cocaine and then McLovin yeah. like gets a bunch of coke and like blows it into his face and he's like now you do. Yeah. It kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of that a little bit. Um, but just generally that part just kind of I just like that part and I thought it was just kind of comedic to picture that that type of establishment. Yeah I really like that that section talking about how like the, the, the infinitesimal grinding grinds have ended up in the corners of their eyes and stuff. Oh god yeah. Ugh. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna pick two, but they're very small footnotes to sections we've already talked about. Um, to the opening in the opening section where they're bickering, I just really love the the choice to for Mason to say inexpensive salvo in response to to Dixon saying it's clear no you don't <laughs> want anyone to look at you. Yeah, because it, it it is it is a cheap shot, and it's the best way to phrase cheap shot probably. That's yeah. a good one. And uh, second, in the in the scene where RC is trying to vomit up the watch, um, he tells his kids, in, uh, "Enjoy yourselves, children, even at the expense of your poor, suffering old father. If you're that disparate for merriment, no matter, go mock too. Soon will equal inconvenience befall you. Eat everyone, tis life. Will not go swallowing watches, thank you." Not if you want to sneak up on an Indian someday, you won't. Hadn't planned on it, Pa. That That's just, that's a great little sitcom scene, essentially. Yeah. Uh, let's move into quotes. Um, I, mine is long, so um, bear with me because I'm going to read probably the whole thing or at least most of it, but I think it's, it's just such a good passage. 
Um, so it starts on page 306, at the very bottom of page 306 on my edition. They saw white brutality enough at the Cape of Good Hope. They can no better understand it now than then. Something is eluding them. Whites in both places are become the very savages of their own worst dreams, far out of measure to any provocation. Mason and Dixon have consulted with, it seems, with all it seems to them they safely may. Recall that there are two kinds of electricity, Dr. Franklin remarked, positive and negative. Cape Town's curse is its weather, the electric charge during the stormy season bring, being everywhere positive, whilst in the dry season all is negative. Are you certain, Dixon mischievously, tis not the other way round, that the rainy weather, yes, yes, somewhat brusquely, whichever direction it goes, the relevant quantity is here, is the size of the swing between the two, that vertiginous repolarizing of the air, and perhaps the aether too, which may be affecting the very mentality of the people there. Then what's America's excuse, Dixon inquired, mild as country tea. Unfortunately, young people, recalls the reverend, the word liberty, so unreflectively sacred to us today, was taken in those times to encompass even the darkest of men's rights, to injure whomever we might wish, unto extermination were it possible, free of royal advice or proclamation lines and such. This being indeed, and alas, one of the liberties of our late war was fought to secure. Bray, on her way out of the room for a moment, turns in the doorway, shocked. What a horrid thing to say. She does not remain to press the point. At the time of Bushy Run, confides Ives Spark, and I have seen the very document, General Bouquet and General Gage both signed off on expen expenditures to replace hospital blankets used to convey the smallpox to the Indians, as they perhaps too clearly stipulated. To my knowledge, marvels Ives, this had never been attempted on the part of any modern army till then. Yes, Wicks, Mr. Lespark, beaming at the Reverend, you wish to add something? You may ever speak freely here, killing Indians having long ago ceased to figure as a sensitive topic at this house. Since you put it that way, the reverend in willed cheeriness, firstly, everyone knew about the British infection of the Indians, and no one spoke out. The Paxton boys were but implementing the same wicked policy of extermination using rifles instead, although, secondly, unlike our own more, more virtuous day, no one back then was free from sin. Quakers, as handsomely as traders of less Pacific faiths, profited from the sale of weapons to the Indians, including counterfeit brown besses that blew up in the faces of their purchasers, as often as felled whites any white settlers. Thirdly, how many more are there likely to be, inquires his brother-in-law. Apparently I must reconsider my offer. Everyone got along, declares Uncle Wicks. You can go looking for sinners, not in an occupied city. You can't go looking for sinners, not in an occupied city, for everyone at one time or another was here Here was some kind of rogue. The preacher is the printer's devil. The mantua maker is the milkmaid. Even little Peggy Shipton, God bless her outrageous flirt, even at four or five, skipping in and out, handing each of us flowers whilst her father frowned one by one over our disbursements. Uh, I'm I'm going to stop there because it goes on for a while, but that passage um, really exemplifies what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, just that, that innate cruelty um, that exists in, in people. And I, I really, I can't really add anything to that. I think his, his words are just so powerful there. Yeah. My favorite quote, I'm actually surprised it hasn't come up yet. This episode Somebody on the subreddit did highlight this quote uh, a few weeks ago, I think two or three weeks ago, uh, but it's on 345 and it does kind of play into what I was talking about with uh, Manifest Destiny and, and the frontier and stuff. I may not read the whole paragraph, uh, but I'll read at least parts of it. Um, does Britannia, when she sleeps, dream? Is America her dream in which all that cannot pass in the metropolitan wakefulness is a loud expression? away in the restless slumber of these provinces and on westward whatever tis not yet mapped nor written down nor ever by the majority of mankind seen serving as a very rubbish tip for subjunctive hopes for all that may yet be true 
Earthly Paradise, Fountains of Youth, Realms of Prester John, Christ's Kingdom, Ever Behind the Sunset, uh, Safe Till the Next Territory to the West Be Seen and Recorded. Uh, I think it goes it goes on from there. Um I that that paragraph is some of the some of Pynchon's best prose in any of his books, in my opinion. Uh I really love the the Prester John reference who I was first I'm actually I was I was surprised that at the time, and I've kind of been surprised by how much it's come up since then, but I was first introduced to Prester John, uh, the concept of Prester John from the Animal Collective single a few years ago, oh. um, which is kind of weird to me again, because I, I, I feel like I should have come across it earlier than that, but I don't think I ever did. Uh, and this, that section, that paragraph does kind of also remind me, um, like I said, of Manifest Destiny and like the kind of the idea of the frontier. And how, you know, whatever the whatever, there's always something like beyond the sunset, like behind the sunset or something like there's always, you know, the fountain of youth There's something miraculous uh, waiting for us in the in the western portion of America. Um, and generally, I don't know, that section kind of makes me think of uh, the Mormon belief that Jesus, like after he died on the cross, like ascended and then visited North America. Yeah. Um, which I've always found really, I've always found the Mormon theology and all of that, all of their, all of their beliefs, very interesting. Not in like, I want to, not in like in a way I want to convert to Mormonism, but just kind of in a, like a, like an anthropological way. Like I can't like, kind of like, I, you know, it's just super interesting to me. Some of the stuff that they believe, yeah. some of the, yeah. some of the aspects of their theology. Um, yeah, I just love that quote. It's a good one. It is a very good one. Mine, yeah. um, my quote is is a, a, just a piece of description. Really, um, it comes from page three hundred five when they're when Mason and Dixon are are shuttled into this coffee house that's that's wreathed in smoke, um, which does oh, lead yeah. which does lead to another funny point in this chapter where like once the the insane news is delivered that these these killings are going to continue the smoke begins to recede and you can start to see people again um but the description initially of the coffee house is i think absolutely beautiful where he says this way gentlemen mr chantry helpfully steering the surveyors to the alley and through a back entry into the coffee house where they find tumult easily outroaring what prevails outside with its own philogenous weather, at once public and private, created of smoke billowing from pipes, earths, stove, the room would provide an extraordinary sight were any able to see, in this combination, peculiar and precise of unceasing talk and low visibility that makes Riot's indoor sister conspiracy not only possible, but resultful as well. One may be inches from a neighbor, yet both blurred past recognizing. Thus may advice grow reckless and prophecy extreme, given the astonishing volume of words moving about in here, not only aloud, but upon paper as well, paper being waved in the air, poked at repeatedly for emphasis, held up as shielding against uncongenial remarks. Here and there in the nebulosity, lone lamps may be made out at undefined distances, Snugly haloed, servant boys moving to and fro, house cats in warm currents of flesh running invisibly before them, each boy vigorously working his small bellows to clear a path through the smoke, meantime calling out names true and taken. It's it's such a incredible piece of prose from from a descriptive element. I mean, obviously what he yeah. is 
describing is absurd. Like a a coffee a coffee house so thick with smoke that you know you need a bellows to clear a path to find somebody. <laughs> like you you can't actually see anyone. You know that like that concept is is inherently absurd. But he he uses the absurdity of the situation he's creating to make incredibly poignant statements about um like like one of them here being the the talk in low visibility that makes riots indoor sister conspiracy not only possible but resultful as well or advice grow reckless and prophecy extreme given the astonishing volume of words moving about and and the idea like he uses it to describe this this phenomenon that when you're not visible and when you're in these positions where you can you can speak freely because nobody's going to tie your words back to you necessarily because they 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 can't see you that suddenly so many things that are ordinarily eschewed in conversation or wouldn't be put forth in conversation or wouldn't be talked about openly suddenly can be you know it's it's one of these moments where we talk about Pinchon's humor we talk about Pinchon's absurdity and and rightly so but he's so aware of his own for lack of a better term, tropes or stylized writing that he is able to use it cleverly to talk about real things that human beings do and real realities of, you know, conspiracy or uh, prophecy, as he says there, and that those things are bred in anonymity incredibly well. Um, it, it it was one of those things that just completely struck me off my feet when I read it and, you know, was one of those, like, slapping myself on the head moments as far as like, why can't I write like that? Why can't more yeah. people write like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of the beauty of the prose, I, I did find it interesting that the word fulogen or fulogenous uh, comes up in that quote. Yeah. Um, what which always, it always, it always makes me think of Gene Wolfe every time that, that yes. word comes up, which um, the pigeon wiki does mention this, but I probably would have gotten there anyway. And I want to say that the, the surname Wolf also comes up maybe in that chapter and the chapter before or after. Um, and I don't know. I don't think it's impossible that Pynchon has read some Gene Wolf. I mean, no, I think I it's know. likely. Yeah. 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 And that, that word literally meaning the color that is darker than black is such a perfect word choice for what he's describing as well. Yeah. Will, who stole yours this week? Well, when Britannia sleeps, is America her dream? Is literally my favorite paragraph in all of Pynchon's writing. So yeah, mm. Luke, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I guess, I guess, having to struggle oh so hard to find <laughs> a replacement. <laughs> Um, because, because really, we have we have read out a lot of the best quotes in this section. We have, um, yeah. I'm just gonna go for one that uh, I just I really like the the image it brings to mind. Uh, on uh, 338, the great scepter atop the courthouse continues in the dark to radiate its mysterious force. The stock are gone to sleep. The fish and the wine were excellent. Rooms fill with tobacco smoke. Insomnia and headaches abound. Cards emerge from cherrywood recesses. Occupants of the houses along the river stir among the lumps in their mattresses, ready at any alarm to wake. Their dreams are of Spanish visitors, who turn out to be unexpectedly jolly, 
with courtly ways, rolling eyes, passionate guitars, not a homicidal thought in the boatload of them. Everyone ends up at an all-night redotto with piles of mysterious, delectable Mediterranean food. Sandwiches made of entire loaves stuffed with fried sausages and green peppers, eggplants, tomatoes, cheese melted everywhere, fresh melons mysteriously preserved through the voyage, wines whose grapes are descended from those that supplied Bacchus himself, Newcastle dreams drooling into and soaking pillows, helpless before the rapacious festive fleet. How swiftly might the popish scourge descend, another Don Vicente, Havoc's friend, another vile and ringleted senor, another insult to our sovereign shore. That's a great one. Yeah, and it's it, nothing there, you know, some some interesting stuff about Spanish invaders, but really it's just kind of a beautiful dream image. I had that one highlighted as well. Um, that's just, yeah, great imagery. Absolutely love it. So we had, uh, we have one comment um, that uh, Luke's going to read, and, and I, I will apologize in advance. Uh, this comes from Apple Podcasts, and uh, it's a review that was left there, and I think it was left back in May. So I apologize to this, uh, this user if you're listening. Uh, I'm sorry for it taking so long to... Uh, to find this, um, and and I'll use this real quick as a as a moment to mention if if you haven't already heard if if anyone is listening to this on Stitcher, um, which is where I was listening to a lot of my podcasts, um, they are discontinuing the app entirely in August. So um, if that is your platform of choice uh, and you haven't already got the email from them, I would definitely recommend looking into other. Uh, podcast platforms um, pretty soon because it's you got about two months from now. All right. Uh, yeah. So the comment is from user Tarheel Monk. Uh, like like Cody said, it's on Apple Podcasts. So the comment is: uh, This podcast is quickly becoming one of my favorites for in-depth analyses of literature. They have great insight and perspective. The audio quality is also very good. Thank you for that. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, we have kind of considered, I mean, we are, we will kind of, we will finish with Pynchon's oeuvre in the next few years. And we, we have kind of floated the idea of perhaps continuing on after that with covering other authors or something. I don't know. I mean, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we do really appreciate that comment though. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and then we also got an email, uh, our, our weekly email, I guess is, is fair to say now, from Brett, um, who uh, has been such a, a great um, resource and, and friend, I think, to the, the podcast now. Um, so Brett sent us quite a bit on this one. So I, I'm really excited to, uh, to share his uh, thoughts on this. So, uh, Kate, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, of course. And and obviously seconded on on Brett's contributions. They've been absolutely excellent. Thank you for listening and, and for writing these weekly emails. I know all of us really appreciate it. Um, this time through, Brett said, took me a couple extra days to listen to the latest episode, but really enjoyed it. The discussion on the Washington episode was great, especially the stuff about appropriation. That's right in line with a whole lot of my annotations on that episode. Just a great, insightful discussion. Thank you very much. I think we all enjoyed that aspect of, of recording the episode quite a lot i, th I think we we discovered a lot about what was being done there uh, as we talked about it the only small detail i have to add involves washington trying to get gershom to invest in washington's dismal swamp land company here are two glosses from the companion that i think showcase how this really highlights the issues he discussed in this episode 
279.32 Dismal Swamp Land Company. Land wasn't added to the official name until 1814, but Washington was a major shareholder in the Dismal Swamp Company, which sought to buy the Great Dismal Swamp in southern Virginia and northern North Carolina, drain it, and then resell the land at a profit. The scheme didn't work, though the company did turn a profit in 1810 thanks to the lumber industry. 279.36. Wave Gershom back. Are Mason and Dixon shushing because they don't want to provide real estate advice? or because they've been told not to interfere in master-slave relationships. The power dynamics are a labyrinth here. Washington is giving Gershom the appearance of power. It is Gershom's money to invest. But he's also suggesting his slave's money be invested in his own company and its bad business plan. Is it really advice? A command? Is Washington waving Gershom back because he's afraid Mason and Dixon might, contra- might give contravening input? Much of what's going on here appears to involve Washington trying to look like a nice guy while still maintaining all of his power and privilege. This ties in quite well with your question about bouquet and the proclamation line. Cody, your note about smallpox and blankets will come up later in the novel, so it's a good thing to point out. Here's the simple gloss on bouquet. 277.1, bouquet's proclamation. Henry Bouquet was a British military officer during the French and Indian War. Eric L. Town paints a fuller picture. But Bouquet helped negotiate and maintain the Royal Proclamation of 1763, in which Britain forbade colonial American settlement west of the Alleghenies. This was done to make the American colonies easier to rule, but also to avoid further conflict with French settlers in the Ohio River Valley. The edict was wildly unpopular among the colonists, who felt they just fought a war to win that French territory fair and square. The later discussion about Thomas Cressip, who will show up again, involves the fact that Cressip owned some shares in the Ohio Company, which owned land west of the Proclamation Line. Those shares got less valuable when the Proclamation came down. Cressip had actually offered Bouquet a chance to buy into the Ohio Company cheaply, probably in hopes of influencing the decision about westward settlement, but Bouquet refused. Washington argues, probably correctly, that there's nothing especially noble in this. Bouquet just wants to be the gatekeeper of westward settlement and reap the benefits associated with that position of power. All this points to the real estate interests that drove, drive? Things in America. There's a great interview with historian Woody Holton that covers a lot of the general stuff. I'm linking it here. Henshon is incredibly skeptical of real estate, especially in Inherent Vice, and the Mason-Dixon line is essentially a giant real estate project. It's about drawing lines as a way to define property and create economic value at the expense of nature and native peoples. He then does link to said interview, which is from the Ezra Klein Show, which is a New York Times podcast in an episode from October 19th of 2021. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. I highly recommend taking a look at that link. It was very insightful. One final note on this. The captain of the ship that carries Mason and Dixon to America is named This Round's Reading. He's Captain Falconer. The Falcon cannot hear the Falconer is a line from Yeats' apocalyptic poem, The Second Coming. And I think part of the idea is that this Captain Falconer is unleashing a powerful, violent force on the continent, force no one can control. All right. So, again, thank you, Brett. Um, these, I, I, I look forward to these emails every, every uh, week. Um, just because it's, it's so interesting to, to see... Uh, all the historical context that he can provide. So um, I I could gush on and on about how much uh, <laughs> Brett's done to help us out here. So um, I really, really, we really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, 
Next week, we're going to talk chapters 36 through 40, so please do join us. Um, We did also finally get around to setting up a Twitter account. Uh, We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, We are at Pod on there. We also have links to our email and our Instagram page, so if you have any questions or comments or anything, please reach out to us, and we will be happy to share them. As always, thank you so much for listening. We really, really do appreciate it, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. See ya. So I am, um, I think I'm like two thirds of the way through uh, the Magus, Magus, I don't know how you pronounce it, the John Fowles book I've been reading. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, so it lives up to the hype, huh? It, yeah, it really does. It's very, it's, it's surreal in a way that's really grounded. I don't really know how else to, to describe it. It's not it's not so surreal that it feels otherworldly, but it's surreal enough to feel uncomfortable. Um, I can totally see how it was an inspiration for the game because uh-huh. um, it, it deals a lot with that kind of psychological manipulation of what is genuine and what isn't. Um, and so I'm kind of at the point at a point in the book where it's really starting to blur those lines pretty 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 heavily. Sure. So I'm, yeah, it's, it's really good. I'm, I'll probably finish it in the next day or two here. I really want to read it. Everything you've said sounds incredibly fascinating. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, have been inundated with, uh, with, with books that other people have given me to read. <laughs> um, I have a book club with a coworker that we're reading little women for right now. Mm. And, um, one of my, one of my friend's wives gave me, two Discworld books because she's super in, yeah she's super which into, ones she gave me um guards guards which Great. she said that would be like the best starting point because i've read no Discworld. yeah yeah i was gonna ask because i i haven't gotten into Pat- pratchett at all and um i've been meaning to because y'all are into, into the series if what was the other one that, that she gave you uh small gods so start with small gods mm. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. It guards guards is great. Um, but small gods that was the first one I read. Um, and it it's I think I think part of it what I enjoyed about it really was the the satirization of religion of organized yeah. religion. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Um, and Pratchett is so good at that. Like I, it, it's like I'm not sure. I don't know if you've read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, but it's very on yeah. par with that kind of writing style and and dry humor. Um, that's why I've wanted to read his stuff for a really long time, but I, I just, it's intimidating. It is very intimidating. Yeah, exactly. I mean, speaking of Zappa, I can't recommend him to anybody because it's impossible (laughs) to like, be like, yeah, of the 80 albums that he released during his life, here's the one to begin with. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's, let me, I'm going to post this in here. There was, I found a really good flow chart for Discworld, um, that kind of breaks down where to start with certain books because some of them operate in a sort of series, although they're really all pretty standalone novels. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But th- you can follow a certain path trajectory with, with certain characters um, if, if you're interested in doing it that way. And like the Rincewind novels are really good. I haven't read all of them, um, but what I have read is really good. Um, and then the, I've read pyramids and small gods. So the ancient civilizations one is really good. Uh, Pratchett. I have, I have not read bad Pratchett. So sure. That's good. Yeah, I, I had had 
I had worked with a guy a long time ago who was a, getting his PhD in, in English. And after he learned that I, I was an ex-minister, he wanted me to read Small Gods and talk about it with him. And then it was the same, uh, yeah. Yeah. The same, same thing with my friend's wife. And that was why she gave me that book along with along with guards guards so i i it's been on my list to read for a while and i'm i'm looking forward to actually getting to it because i love hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah me too yeah were you gonna I, say something well i was just gonna say um i i haven't read small gods I, i'm saving that one for later i i've mm. i'm about halfway through a chronological reading of the Discworld. oh okay um i do think probably guards guards is like the best introduction to discworld in general but yeah as a former minister mm -hmm. small gods is the way to go for you everything awesome. i heard yeah yeah i'm looking forward to it but uh luke if you were looking for a recommendation on that um i i say pick guards guards up or any of the death novels just yeah. go for it don't really recommend starting with the color of magic that's yeah. a tricky one to start with, yeah. I, I've heard Ratchet. that it, it reads like someone who doesn't know what he's writing yet. It's just, it's really, I mean, okay, it is very much mocking sword and sorcery kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's very hammy. Gotcha. Yes, that's, a, that's it, a good word for it. There's a lot more dirty humor than the later books. Yeah, um, it gets better as it goes, that series. Yeah. Um, and on, on speaking on Zappa, I saw a similar kind of flow chart for Zappa that breaks it down based on, cause I've had the same problem. Like I try to recommend yeah. Zappa to people, but it's one of those weird things where basically what they were doing was looking at it from like, what, what kind of music does this person already like and sure. use that as a, as a foothold into where you're going to go next. Like if they're a jazz fan, give them like hot rats or, or uh, Tinseltown rebellion, or if they're more into the rock uh, you know, some, some of the earlier stuff or some of the like shut up and play your guitar stuff. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, it's Zappa is the same thing. It's intimidating because there's so yeah. damn much of it. And well, he's, he's so singular in his sense of humor and oh, like, yeah. in his writing that even if you do find like a, you know, okay, this person does like jazz. So I'm going to go with hot rats or this person does like this. I'm going to go with that. They still might bounce off of Zappa's stuff just because of, how singular of an artist he is for me what it required was my drum instructor is like a zappa super fan uh, um is a good a good introduction to zappa on some of that live stuff yeah and, the black and, page especially yeah and he told me no his recommendation is that no matter what music you listen to apostrophe is the best place to start with zappa apostrophe and overnight sensation that's usually my go-to recommendation yeah so i i listened to apostrophe and then he did yeah overnight sensation was the second one and then after that he recommended um oh god what was it uh one size fits all and yep. roxy Probably my and favorite. elsewhere those are all good yeah absolutely and and i mean he's absolutely turned me into like uh, and a zappa obsessed person like i i <laughs> at this point i now collect like bootlegs online of shows and once um, it clicks it's have you seen the like any of the dvds like baby snakes or um uh what was the other one i was thinking of um it's where it's set up like a tv channel i can't think of the name of it um if you can find those they're so worthwhile baby snakes especially it's like three hours long uh, mm -hmm. of concert footage, but he worked with, um, I can't remember the guy's name, Bruce something. He was a claymation specialist. And so there's a lot of this claymation art that's intersurped with the music. And it's so wild and so cool because they show you 
not just the the actual claymation itself, but how they do it. So there's a lot of behind the scenes of them setting up all these models and stuff and manipulating them. Really fascinating. It's it's a really cool um, concert film if you can find it. That um, section of the Zappa documentary was super interesting, where they were talking about that claymation artist and like yeah. how the two of them sort of found each other and and how Zappa used his work through through his career. That documentary that, is really really good. It tore me up. I was yeah. It was pretty rough by the end there. I was actually, I was having this kind of Zappa-esque music conversation with um, my son was asking me if there's, if like, what kind of music reminded me of Pinjon. Um, and so I mentioned Zappa, but he's, he, so he's really into hip hop right now. Um, so I've been kind of showing him a lot of um, what I like. But when he mentioned Pinjon, I was thinking, the first thing I thought, and I wasn't sure if you guys were familiar with him, uh, was Aesop Rock. Yeah. Um, yep. Totally like the most Pinchonian hip hop artist I could think of. Um, there may be a few others, but his, his, his ability to use words and, and play with language has always reminded me of Pinchon. I, I got a recommendation then. Ooh, Maybe please. not for your son. He's just really <laughs> yeah. D- yeah. dark. Um, uh-huh. is Billy Woods. Mm. Oh, that's Billy a good one. Yeah. He I've is the him, most. Yeah. Pinchonian rapper that I'm aware of. There's a YouTube channel I watch called uh, Dead End Hip Hop, and they've mentioned him several times. Specifically, one of the guys on that channel is like a big, big fan yeah. of his. So Mike C. He's been on my radar. Big fan Mike C. Town, exactly. Yep. Yeah. I would also say that Cool Keith would be another option. Um, some of his some of his projects, like Doctor Octagon, or yeah. the other like characters that he would come up with, are are. Pretty pretty Pinchonian too in, in some of it. I mean the the concept of a evil like alien space gynecologist who's also a serial <laughs> killer is yeah. it's pretty out there. But that that record, Doctor Octagon, is is great. It's a good that's a good album. Rock yeah. Kim also yeah. came to mind. Like a lot of his wordplay and and um the way he manipulates language was popped into my head too. Um. Uh-huh. Outside of hip hop, actually, I I saw somebody mention this on the subreddit uh, months ago, the Thomas Pynchon subreddit months ago, and I found it weird. But um, somebody mentioned that "Low" by David Bowie is incredibly mu- is incredibly like Gravity's "Rainbow." Mm, uh, that's my favorite that Bowie record. That is my second favorite Bowie record. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to it on the plane while while getting back into Gravity's "Rainbow," and I was just like, "Wow, yeah, this actually fits like a glove." That's yeah. really interesting. Because um, now that you've mentioned it, yeah, I could see that absolutely. They, yeah. Well, Low yeah. came out in '77. Sounds right. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it was influenced by because that's when he was in Germany for that time. So yeah, you know, Berlin trilogy. Yeah, the the especially like Warsawa. Yeah. Super super similar to some of the 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 more cyberpunk elements of Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, fun fact about that song, by the way, that was the that song was the inspiration for the original name that Joy Division went by. Yep. yep. Um, they they went by the name Warsaw off of that song, and then there was already a band in Manchester called Warsaw, and so they had to change their name, and then that was when they came up with Joy Division. Um, yeah, I I actually got a chance to go to Hansa Studios when I when I was in Berlin for a while, and I specifically went there because I wanted to to like see the microphone that David Bowie recorded low in or like go to the the studio booth where Iggy Pop recorded like the idiot like these these seminal albums from the the 70s and 
the minute that we walked into the actual like studio and the tour guide walked out, he just immediately went, is anyone here a fan of Depeche Mode? And no, <laughs> nobody raised their hand like I did. Yeah. I was like, I was like, Violator's a good record, but like, yeah, I, good <laughs> I haven't listened to much else. And he went, okay. And I don't know if he was trying to convert everybody, but he spent the entire tour talking about Depeche Mode. Oh at my no, god, that's hilarious. At, at no point did he bring up David Bowie. At no point did he talk about Iggy Pop. Like all these other seminal artists who recorded major records in that same studio. It's just Depeche Mode from top to bottom the entire time. That's funny. That's one of the wackiest things. (laughs) My son is is really into Bowie. Um, And so I I was having a conversation with my wife about uh, that that time in Germany. And I, I mentioned because... We were listening to uh, we were listening to Station to Station in the car, but that's my favorite of his. Um, and I just made an offhand comment about how he has no recollection of making that album. Um, <laughs> and yeah. my son was like, "Why?" And I, I immediately regretted uh, saying that. I was like, "Um, just cocaine he is was, a hell of a he was drug. really busy." Well, cocaine and neo Nazism, yeah, my boy. And milk and milk. He, maybe milk. he was, Hot he was milk and nothing but milk. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Uh, one, one of one of my favorite stories from that very aptly titled low period of David Bowie's life is um, he went to go get Iggy Pop from rehab. And the <laughs> moment that he, like he picked up Iggy Pop from rehab, he just immediately went, do you want some coke? And then they <laughs> they started snorting coke seriously to the point where they ran out. David Bowie then drove his car looking for his drug dealer's house and like pulled up onto the lawn of what he what he assumed was his drug dealer's house and started like blaring the horn uh trying to get his drug dealer's attention and then like Jesus. went to the went to the front door when no one answered and th- as soon as the door opened david boy realized he was at the wrong house and <laughs> i i cannot imagine what that must have been like to answer your door and there is a david bowie from the late 70s coked out of his mind and his like <laughs> and his like audi is parked on your your front lawn like that would be one of the most surreal experiences oh and, and he's furious because he's a coke yeah. for his fix yeah absolutely <laughs> oh man yeah so if if you if you're obviously you're a big bowie fan and i think we've talked about it before but if you haven't watched the venture brothers you need to watch the venture brothers because he pops into that show so much and in in a very large way at certain points too uh, i have not watched it oh perfect (laughs) was that well both pretty good oh the iggy pop pops up too oh yeah Yeah. iggy pop and klaus nomi as well he's in there a couple times okay i'll definitely have Um, to watch that it's such a good show uh what is it on Uh, it's on HBO Max. Okay. Um, I think it might be on Hulu also. They so the show got kind of unceremoniously canceled um, before they were able to wrap everything up. It had a history of they really took their time between seasons. Like that show came out in two thousand three, and they in season seven aired last year. Wow! So they really, really took their time writing it. But it it shows they, that show is so tightly done. It's there was never a bad episode. I, you find things. It's very, it's very Pinchonian in that sense. Like I have rewatched that show endlessly and find new stuff throughout it. 
Yeah, it's it's a show that it feels like if you're if you just started, it feels like it might be another Adult Swim crappy like parody of the you know golden age of cartoons, Johnny mm-hmm. Quest and all that. Yeah, but no, it it is actually very insightfully written. Yeah, I've had other people recommend it to me, not in the same terms of like, hey, both Bowie and Iggy Pop, two of your favorite music artists are in this show. <laughs> I don't know how they wouldn't mention that to you. I don't know how they didn't either. Yeah. Because there have been definitely times where I have not shut up about Iggy Pop uh, during conversations with these people, but I will definitely have to uh, definitely have to check that out. 